detective, thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Care Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. everyone and welcome back to the phantom galaxy podcast the crossroads where science fiction fantasy and horror meet i'm your host nathan bartleball i'm joined by my co-host bill van vagel bill how are you i'm doing very well i'm enjoying the nice weather it's got to be i don't know in fahrenheit it would probably be about 85 degrees out so i was sitting on my hammock and i'm reading a book that quite possibly could be a book review in the next little while by an author that you are not a huge fan of uh, it's the book called The Lost by Jack Ketchum. And Jack Ketchum does very gritty horror, but at the same time, it's very easy to read. It's got a Stephen King semblance to it until you get a couple key scenes that just go a little bit out there. So I think that will be one in the future, uh, probably sometime after I come back from camping. So I'll probably have forgotten all the detail of the book. Yeah, that's right. You are headed up camping. Yep. Soon, right? Next. So we should probably announce that too. Um, that it, for the month of July, Bill, you're you'll be sort of off the podcasting uh, radar, right? I'll, I'll off be the off the, everything radar. I will be off everything radar, but we've got enough in the tank that you won't even know I'm gone. That's exactly right. We have we have a lot of great stuff coming up, and we, Bill, we will have enough stuff stockpiled. That uh, in fact, we can stop now and we have enough stuff stockpiled. But by the time we get uh, get to uh, July, no one will notice. But you'll be having a great vacation. I so. will be sitting on my hammock, my portable hammock, beside my trailer, looking at the water and wondering. I I think Nathan is doing just fine without me. That's right. You can listen to the podcast as you go to sleep or something. <laughs> Uh, that's how, I do that with the LOTC episodes, but they got so long, I eventually would wake up and they'd still be on. It was kind of disconcerting. <laughs> I'd go to sleep to, to LOTC and wake up and you guys were still talking. It made me feel kind of odd. Um, anyway, anyway, so we, ha- we also have coming up, because we're now in June, and we're coming up very soon on what will be the one year since we started, uh, since we resurrected Phantom Galaxy, in a large part because of... Uh, because a bill coming to me at one point saying, Nathan, I see you have a podcast. They haven't posted anything in two years. What's going on? And that I honestly didn't realize. I was just like, this is a chance to get check one off and get on another podcast. Yeah. And you did, <laughs> but it's been awesome. I'm really happy with it. You, and you are now, uh, you are the longest running, uh, I guess besides myself, the longest running host of Phantom Galaxy. And it's been awesome. And it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And, the other really cool thing, though, about that's different this time than last time is that we've also 
uh, brought a lot of people onto the show. And I think we've, and not just people that we knew, but we've, we made some new friends along the way and are continuing to do so and brought some new people in. And, you know, um, the horror chronicle guys off the top of my head, I think of that. I didn't really know that well before we started yeah, the doing horror this. chronicle guys for those, just to pull the veil back a little bit. My job in our relationship is to be the greeter. I meet people, I make the connections. And so then it's Nathan's role to be the finisher. He closes it out and brings them in. <laughs> Yeah, so, you set up all the yeah the cocktail weenies and the. That's it. I'm kind of like if you if you go on plenty of fish, I'm the guy that will introduce you, and then <laughs> Nathan creepy. seals the deal. That's creepy. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> the guy on plenty of fish. Wow. Yeah. Let's not do that. Um, anyway, to, the reason I mentioned this is that we're coming up. We're going to have a lot of guests on that episode. It, it'll be like the uh, PBS telethon version of a Phantom Galaxy episode. But for that episode, I'd really, we would both really like it if uh, the listeners would call in uh, or send or send mail in or even leave messages on Facebook. Uh, what we're looking for are your favorite or or maybe the most uh, impacting sci-fi, fantasy, or horror uh, movie book experience that you've had. Something that really made you. If if you are a fan of of the genre, that it uh, really made you think, hey, I this is something I'm really into, you know. And it, and as we said last time, it really doesn't even have to be science fiction or fantasy. It could be martial arts. It could be anything that's sort of genre related. But really wanted to just to hear some. Uh, you can send some voicemails. We try to keep it within the five to ten minute range. You know, that's about what we're. We're looking for, and we'll try to make sure that we get as many of them up as we can. And the ones that we aren't able to get on the actual show, we'll make a we'll make a place for either on the website or we'll release something kind of separate. But uh, what we we will make sure that everybody who sends something in gets mentioned. And we're also going to do a giveaway. I will post very shortly after in the next week here what we will be giving away. We have a lot of prizes. Uh, I, I sent a picture to Bill the other day. My wife is now sort of. Uh, Asking me, when are you going to start giving this stuff away? <laughs> have a sort of giant pile. And the migration to the garage begins. Yes, yes, right. So before it ends up getting boxed up and put in the attic and I have to go looking for it like some scene out of a, out of a James Wan movie, I would rather just give it away now. So we will be giving away some, some cool prizes to... Uh, uh, to those who do send in a voicemail or Facebook. The other way that you can get entered into any of our drawings would be to go to uh, iTunes, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, leave a, a preferably a five-star review, and just uh, uh, that's a good way for us to get the podcast out there a little bit more, out to more uh, listeners, and or share, share a, the link. When we put the episodes up and we put the links on Facebook or on Twitter to share, share, share it out across Twitter or Facebook, and that will also enter you into the drawing. So lots of different ways, but really we'd love to hear from you for this upcoming episode. You'll be in good company. We're bringing a lot of the uh, usual suspects on, so it'll be a good time. If you want to send me a voicemail or a uh, basically an email with a, with a, a voice um, file in it. You can do that. You can send it to phantomcasts at gmail.com. That's P-H-A-N-T-O-M-C-A-S-T-S. You can also go over to Facebook. And on Twitter, we're Phantom Galaxy. That's actually Phantom with an F over there. It's F-A-N-T-O-M-G-A-L-A-X-Y. 
on Twitter. And uh, any of those places, if you want to uh, leave a blurb or send me a message or, again, send me an email, uh, we will make sure that uh, you are mentioned when we do the show, which will be coming towards the end of August. I think the first uh, return episode was around June 21st. Um, I'm not quite that ambitious. My goal will be to get it up by the end of June. We'll have our anniversary episode up and out. So I was going to say, the other thing you can do is if, you know, if nothing pops to mind, but you want to say, mention a favorite movie that we have reviewed or an episode that particularly you enjoyed or something that, you know, just I said something or Nathan said something that made you laugh. Comment on that. What are we doing? Great. What do we need to do? Suggestions. We're always looking for feedback. Anything with a shout out will get you entered. Mail is welcome. Is basically what I'm saying. Mail, food, and prizes. We will take them all. Yes, exactly right. Just don't send any human body parts in the mail. No. Or nothing nothing with powder. No, no. And so in our continuing desire to get the most current films, or the films that people have been talking about, both Nathan and I watched the film Spiral from the Book of Saw. Not to be confused with the spiral that came out in 2020 or a spiral that came out in the year 2000. There are quite a few spiral films, actually. Spiral, the Book of Saw, was directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman, who did Saw 2 and 4 and also Repo, the Genetic Opera, amongst others. He's done quite a bit of others, but this is probably the most uh, important genre films that he's done. And it was starring Chris Rock, Samuel Jackson, Max Mengelia, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correct. He was in Horns and the Social Network, among yeah, Mengelia. Yeah, he was in um, relation to Anthony Mengelia, who did like the English Patient and the okay. director, who's now and uh, Marissa Nichols, who was in the TV show Riverdale and Cold Case. So it has a fairly large ensemble cast, considering Chris Rock is a member of the police. So the police will obviously anytime there's a police drama or serial, there's all there's a large supporting cast the imdb synopsis is rather brief it says a criminal mastermind unleashes a twisted form of justice in spiral the terrifying new chapter from the book of saw and you probably get that by looking at the poster right behind chris rock's head is a spiral or does it represent something else it almost makes him look like a bit of a saint but we know that he isn't so It opens with a police officer being told on the phone in a message that he has to atone for his lies on the witness stand. It's a very dramatic opening. The officer, this isn't a spoiler. This sets up the whole film. And very bloody. Yes. He ends up getting tied and hung by his tongue in front of a subway car. And he is told kind of in the way of the old spiral with Jigsaw, the old Saw version, Unless you pull out your tongue before the subway car gets there, you will be killed. And at first he's hesitant. He doesn't want to take the cuffs off. He doesn't want to pull it out. And so that was, I thought it was actually fairly strong opening. We find out about Detective Zeke Banks, played by Chris Rock. And he's a hardened police officer who's been on the job. I'm going to guess about 15 years. And he gets a new partner. And he's really resistant to a partner. He wants to be the man who just kind of does his thing. He's been on the force long enough. Why does he have to bring her along this rookie? 
We also find out that his dad, played by Samuel L. Jackson, was formerly a police chief and is very well regarded within the department. We also find out a bit of backstory that Chris Rock, 12 years earlier, had turned in dirty cops, cops that were on the take and not 100% truthful all the time, and feels resentment amongst the force. So he's not that liked, but he doesn't care, to be honest. He's a lone wolf. He does his thing. And he's given this 23-year-old, 24-year-old cop straight out of the academy, one of the hotshot kids, to try to show him the ropes and get him to become a detective level right off the bat. So the rookie is played by Mangela. His name is Detective William Schenk. And we get a scene where Chris Rock finds out that the person who was killed is someone he knew was a close family friend, knew the wife kind of went up to the Academy with him. And initially he was told he wasn't on the case. He goes to the chief and says, come on as chief is played by uh, the actress is I'm just looking her up. Marissa Nichols plays captain Angie Garza says, he says to her, come on, I knew the guy. Let me be the one to take the lead in this. And he does. She says, okay, I'll give it to you. The, now, this is a role departure for Rock, okay? You're always thinking of Rock as either kind of the dirty comedian or the affable sidekick or the guy cracking jokes. In this role, he's hardened. He's brooding. He's a real tortured soul. He almost always seems like he has a sneer on his face. I was saying to Nathan before, he's kind of channeling his inner Mickey Rourke, you know, when he always kind of snorts like that. He's kind of got that going. So you're seeing him in a role that you're not necessarily used to. And they all of a sudden, they get a um, computer uh, memory stick that comes in the mail and they stick into the rookie's computer because Rock doesn't want it in his in case it blows up. And we find out that it's a jigsaw copycat thought to be warning the police officers across the force are going to be held accountable for past sins. So we've kind of got a jigsaw link in there. I'm not going to go too deep into what happens next. Other than other officers die along the way. There's what Jay piles would call. Jay of the Dead, wonderful podcaster, calls pig-headed horror. And it ties it ties into this. I thought Samuel L. Jackson actually was really good, really strong as Rock's dad, as a, a retired police chief. I thought he had, you could tell he was having a ball with it. He was having fun with it. He didn't have a huge role. He didn't have a lot of lines. He might have had... 10 minutes maximum screen. He's got that I'm cashing this paycheck, but good gleam in his eye. Yeah, he's got... And he's had a lot recently. He knows he's in it for the money, but I think he had fun with it. When he's not in a movie directed by someone named Tarantino, he just sort of like goes with it. It's just all... (laughs) But you can tell that he was kind of pulling back to the 70s kind of grindhouse shafty kind of roles. He loved this kind of thing. It, it, it was kind of in his wheelhouse. Yeah, they, well, and he, he he did those couple of Shaft movies. Yeah. And honestly, uh, it's probably getting ahead of ourselves here, but I I almost would have rather this been, you know, 
the grandpa shaft or, or papa shaft and his, his boy and chris rock as his son you know a shaft movie where chris rock is channeling all that angst into a shaft movie uh would probably be it was i i would have much rather seen a relational cop drama with the two of them playing off of each other i think than this movie yeah this movie did have its flaws okay i'm telling you right now if you loved the super gory kills you got some of that there is no denying they scrimped on the gore. This is a gorier film than the first movie, but I think that's yeah. no surprise that the first movie really wasn't as gory as people thought it was. It had a gory no. poster, but it very little on-screen gore. I found in this, I don't know about you, Nathan, I found the effects a bit wonky and sloppy. But um, I found the, 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 the production in general wonky and sloppy, but I guess we yeah. can uh, we can talk about that. Did you yeah. enjoy this movie, Bill? I, You know what? It's funny. I, I wouldn't say I love the Saw franchise, but I'm more on the extreme side of things. And I enjoy the situations throughout the series that the people get themselves into. I like the creativity of kills and I like to see if they get in or, or they get out. These ones were okay. You know, there was one or two that was decent. There is one involving fingers. Uh, there's one involving wax uh, that were decent. But they also yeah, there's kind a of, little bit of imagination there, a little bit there, of creativity. There is. But but it, I I also felt like they were taking a page from the Final Destination films, or you a know, whole book, or yeah, or the whole book. <laughs> from, the, from the book of Final Destination. <laughs> because a lot of those kills look like the kind of kills that were in this. Now, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, but I didn't find if you're going to do this kind of film, I wanted more volume in the kills. Because there were a good 20, 25 minutes between them. Because this isn't exactly The Exorcist where you're getting the acting level. Or this isn't exactly some of the Conjuring movies where you're getting the suspense. This is a police serial with bloody killer kills. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I didn't think there was enough of them. No, it's a very, it's it's kind of an odd film. A few weeks back, we reviewed Wrong Turn. And when we reviewed Wrong Turn, in that review, we, uh, or Wrong Turn, for instance, the remake was very, very different beast than the original, right? And in that, in that sense, though, there is a feeling of, we're just getting the spirit of this, we're not so concerned about this being a follow-up to that movie. And I think it helped that movie. Spiral wants to be connected to Saw. Jigsaw is out of the picture. I think it's safe and and not really much of a spoiler to say that. The concept of a copycat killer, I'm okay with. That's fine. But this movie clearly wants to do and tell its own story. It It does have a point. It wants to make some sort of statement regarding police violence and police corruption. And it wants to do that through that sort of moralistic lens that the Saw movies pretended to have. I, I mean... Uh, when you make a movie about sadistic kills, that's perfectly fine. But when you try to take this sort of uh, approach that says it's maybe a little more cerebral than all that, you kind of lose me, particularly when it was uh, the execution of the Saw movies. And, and a lot of that comes down to Darren Lynn Bosman. I just don't think he's a very good director of horror films. Uh, he could handle the, the Rube Goldberg stuff in the Saw movies just fine. But I feel like the drama in those movies is relatively weak. I did enjoy the first movie. I thought that it played mostly fair sort of right up until the end. Uh, it, it 
it was a mixture of interesting atmosphere, but then you also had that kind of MTV fast cutting sequences that I wasn't a fan of. A lot of the editing is kind of strange on that film. There's a little bit less of that here, but overall this movie feels kind of sloppy and that it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. It doesn't quite know what direction it wants Chris Rock to take his character. I'm perfectly happy with Chris Rock playing this more sort of grounded, realistic, beaten down character. I think that's interesting. I don't think the movie gives him enough to do. And it doesn't really give Samuel L. Jackson that much to do either. Uh, because it's it's split between being about the kills and being about the gore. But the two pieces don't mesh together. This isn't really like a, a fun popcorn horror movie. It's almost not a horror movie. This has more in common with Seven, I think than it does saw would would that be fair to say that would be fair although i think of any of the saw films it harkens back to the first one yes it was well even the original saw i think what people yeah. forget when the original saw came out that it was the circumstances in which it was made it was going around to film festivals and everything it had been made prior to getting all of its marketing that sold it as this gory horror film when that movie came out a lot of people were thinking oh Here's another movie in the vein of The Bone Collector, of Saw, of Kiss the Girls. You know, it was in that serial killer, Ben. It wasn't meant as much to be thought of in the same breath, I think, of as, as Jason and Freddy and all of that, which is kind of where it went. Well, because it, it came out around the same time as Hostel. And, and uh, about two of, years before. Or two years before. Okay. And okay, so, um, Hostel so they kinda, came out I think in 2006. They, I was going to say, I think they kind of linked them kind of as that. They put people who aren't real i wouldn't say aren't real i hate that term people that weren't familiar with horror kind of linked them together well i think the kind of movie that saw was advertised as was the movie hostile actually was yeah so i think they unfairly kind of got meshed together when they are much different types of film yeah so here i just don't think this one works that well dramatically uh it goes for some twists and turns i think which are completely telegraphed you could probably listen to our very vague summary and guess what happens in this movie in a general sense of of who's who's who and what's happening uh, just by by listening to what we said. I mean, it's that it's that uh, on the surface, and I felt this whole movie felt on the surface. It's not a bad movie; it has interesting sequences in it. But I never really got into it. And that's been true for me for most of the Saw films. I do appreciate that it isn't just sort of um, like a complete retread. They do try to do something different with it. But it's it's too self-conscious. It seems to constantly uh, be torn between I want to be important, but I also want to give you the gore and everything that a fan of this series wants. So it just sits in a limbo zone. For me, it's a perfectly passable sort of entertainment you can – you're almost into the mystery. You're almost into the drama between Rock and uh, Jackson. You're almost into what's going on with, with Rock and this rookie. But it's always just almost. It's always just almost. And for me, the kills and the, and the, and the horror stuff, the two pieces of the coin keep distracting from each other. Just as you're getting into the cop procedural, the horror and the gore sort of take over and then you're in that. And then when you're ready for more of that, you get back to the procedural. And it's a weird mix. And I've seen this mix done better in other movies. Uh, the first saw, a movie like Fallen with Denzel Washington comes to mind. Uh, the original Seven movie, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because you don't necessarily, at least I didn't, you don't necessarily care about the characters. 
No, I think that's that's what you're. That's yeah. That's kind of what we're getting at. Is you just sit back from it and watch almost from that jigsaw killer level of that godlike level of just watching these things happen. And I don't necessarily need to care about the characters because anybody who is a fan of 80 slashers, you don't care at all about any of the characters, but that's because they're there to serve a purpose and to get killed. The, yeah, it's the, all about emphasis. And I think that's what Bowsman doesn't have. The emphasis in an 80s film was either on the killer or on the ambiance, right? Of the, yeah. of, of the, the, the suspense or the kind of thrill ride of watching these people run through this gauntlet. And you're right, that movie, those movies understood that I don't need to love these characters. This is attempting to be a, a cop character drama that also happens to be a Saw movie. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you. I got the impression of Special Victims Unit. Right. That kind of feel those a little bit. Those are character-driven like, TV shows. Yeah, character-driven TV shows. Except with those shows, you got a little bit behind the veil and you kind of yeah. care about the characters. This one, you didn't. No. And I mean, as much as the melodrama with Chris Rock and his family situation was, or one of the other characters, the rookie copper, what have you, you don't care if they get killed and you don't particularly shed a tear when certain eventualities play out. No, you don't. And that's the big problem. There isn't, uh, there's a movie. Uh, from the eight late 80s called The Vanishing. Um, it's a, it's a, a, a Dutch film. And yeah. it has almost... Have you seen it, Bill? Uh, I have, yes. It has almost no violence in it if, if, of, of extreme violence, but it's very disturbing and very harrowing to watch. And it's almost entirely because you the movie places you in the heads of these characters who are going through these uh, horrific events. Even Even movies of recent years like Martyrs and things like that, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of some of those films, but they still have this ability to place you into the distress of the characters. You just don't have that here. The other the other parallel I wanted to make with this is seeing Chris Rock doing this kind of role is very much akin to Kevin James and Becky, where Kevin James pretty much flipped the switch. So does Chris Rock, but I think Kevin James pulled it off much, much better. Well, Chris, Chris, Chris uh, first of all, Kevin James got to kind of play the heavy, and he got to switch, swap completely because James always kind of plays the buffoon. Whereas I think Rock has always sort of played that sardonic. He was a loud mouth. This is kind of like this could still be Chris Rock just beaten down by the years of doing this particular job. And I think Rock has done a couple of pseudo, not completely serious, but he has shown in the past that he can kind of be a little bit more of the straight man than just the complete silly guy. And so I think that he's demonstrated that before, and he didn't have as much to play off of as James did. I think that's the issue here is uh, James got to have a role that he could really kind of sink his teeth into, and he got to uh, kind of be placed right across from Lulu Wilson in that movie, and that was, that's what worked. Rock is just floating around. All these pieces are floating around a kind of black hole. There's no There's no magnetic center to this movie. Yeah, um, I give this, my rating is a six and a half. This is a five could, and a half for me, 5.5. Okay, for for me, you could do worse. You could do better. If you're a completist to the Saw series, if you kind of like a police procedural, if you like Samuel L. Jackson, you're going to watch it, but temper your expectations. Yeah, I, I have a hard time. I mean, I guess I don't really know it. 
curious to see if there's anyone out there who really walk away loving this movie. I feel like that even if you do enjoy it, and again, I didn't dislike it. I thought it was fine. Or I was, I I was never bored watching it, but it it would hold. It just kept holding me at arm's length. Like you could, there's a point when you can almost feel the movie just pressing you back, you know, uh, and whether that's on purpose or just because it can't quite be any better, it can't quite draw you in. That's more frustrating than if I wasn't with it at all, you know? Yep. And it's that lukewarm where you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. It isn't so good either. No, it's, it's, it's in that murky middle. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh that's spiral from the book of saw. You can, uh, you can purchase it right now to, uh, on uh, on demand. You can purchase it right now on VOD. You can also go see it at the theater. I personally think this is an absolute wait until you can stream it on one of the the rental services like Netflix or uh, when it comes to Prime or something like that or an HBO Max wherever it may end up because um I yeah to me or or a rental a four dollar rental would not be bad. I would say don't. This isn't a buy it for twenty bucks. This isn't a uh, I wouldn't say this is a priority. Go to the theater to see it, kind of movie. Absolutely. Okay. So, which which did you want to do next? Uh, so next, we'll move on and we'll talk. Let's talk another franchise movie. Uh, who that's working on, and ironically, a franchise movie that's uh, the original two films were directed by James Wan, who directed the original Saw film, and this is, of course, The Conjuring. The Devil Made Me Do It. Uh, the third in the Conjuring series, but it's probably realistically, what is this, maybe the sixth or seventh film in the Conjuring quote-unquote universe that has sort of been developing ever since the 2013 original Conjuring movie came out and introduced, uh, well, many of us already knew about uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who in the set of those who know of the Amityville horror, uh, knew that they were sort of spiritualist demon hunters that are self self-described spiritual demon hunters uh, that were working hand-in-hand -hand with the Catholic Church in the 70s. And there were a whole bunch of different cases that they explored. Now, whether you think the Warrens are frauds or not, and I think everyone probably has their own side they come down on, that's not as important to these films because these movies that cast Vera Farmiga as Lorraine Warren and Patrick Wilson as Ed Warren, they... They create a they create a world where we are supposed to just accept the demons and the ghosts and the witches at face value, and we accept the these two as sort of uh, uh, you know they're the cat the Mulder and Scully uh, working in in tandem with the Catholic Church kind of deal, you know. But they're also a family unit. We get to see their kids and how the two of them interact in their marriage. And that's what sort of stood out. And their faith is shown in a very positive light in both of the original Conjuring films. And that was sort of one of the things that I thought was neat and interesting about those movies that were otherwise very well done sort of uh, haunted house jump at you movies, you know. I think they were like fun house scare rides that happened to have very interesting, compelling characters and uh, the, that sense, that almost warm sense of familial connection and relationship connection that you don't normally have in movies like this. It's what worked in Poltergeist. Juan knew that. He made it work in the Insidious movies, and he made it work in Conjuring 1 and Conjuring 2. Then, we, of course, we had Annabelle, which was uh, dealing specifically with the doll, which in reality was a Raggedy Ann doll, but they made it this creepy-looking porcelain thing that looks like someone ran it through a trash compactor and 
the Annabelle movies, to me, were not that great. They were sort of a mixed bag. The first one was pretty bland. The second one was actually pretty interesting. That one had uh, David F. Sandberg directing it, and he went on to do a movie called Lights Out. And then there was Annabelle Comes Home that brought the P- war. Please and- don't mention The Nun. Please don't mention The Nun. <laughs> don't mention The Nun. <laughs> How much entertainment value was in The Nun? None. And... Uh- <laughs> But yes, that so yes, you you get you get to the nun. Did you see the nun, Bill? I avoided it only because I, if I couldn't stand the poster, I sure as heck ain't watching the movie. Oh man, the the movie was rough, and the movie. So we've we've been going through these movies with with, with the kids because this is an odd deal. That's a, something I want to mention about this up front. I don't understand why these movies are rated R. Almost any of the Conjuring universe movies. Uh one of the Annabelle movies, maybe the second one, had to feel that. Anna, the third Annabelle movie, Annabelle Comes Home, was absolutely. Uh, inexplicably rated R. It was a PG-13 and a mild one at that. There was no language. There's minimal violence. There are jump I didn't even realize this was restricted. I had no it idea is. it was restricted. All of them, all three have been, and they are wow. They are not. How Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is a stronger movie than this in terms of scares and and uh, even the violence element of it. I think it's a gimmick, honestly. I, I've been trying to figure that out because... I do know this one had even maybe a little bit more than some of the others in terms of the violence because you actually we see murders and stuff and you know in this film but in the others uh who knows I think they were trying to give this idea that these movies are so scary they're rated R just for being scary uh my my kids saw the films and said uh, their comment was this is more loud than scary which I think think is a fair point but i really enjoyed the first two movies the scariest thing in the second movie was a a basement submerged in water i thought about man think of all the property damage you know that was the scariest thing (laughs) as a homeowner it made me feel sick to my stomach this one is a little bit different james Wan isn't directing it it's actually directed by michael chavez who did another conjuring universe movie that was the curse of la llorona uh this is not the la Yorona that came out last year, which actually was a pretty good movie. This one was by the numbers, possession, hokum, and it really wasn't that good. This takes a, another page out of the Warren's history. The first one dealt with the parent family home, and then the second movie was uh, the Enfield haunting, and it took place over in the UK. And in this one, it's the event that happened in Brookfield, Connecticut, where a young man stabbed someone to death 22 times, by the way. And then the defense, the reasoning he gives when this happens is that he was possessed by the devil or possessed by a demon. And that this possession is sort of what prompted him to commit the murder. And this was a case where this was the first American murder trial where they actually were trying to claim demonic possession as a defense for the defendant. And that's what this movie is about. I will say this. I'm not going to go into the details of the actual trial or what happened to Arnie Johnson, who was the defendant in that trial, because this movie only nominally seems to care about that because most of this movie is completely made up. I personally don't think that that's a... That's neither a plus nor a negative in the movie side, other than for for viewers to understand that this movie should not be taken as the true events. Uh, I don't even know that the filmmakers want you to do that. But in an age where people think that there are whole cults of secret Satanists running our country, it's probably worth mentioning that this movie definitely leans into that satanic panic of the 80s 
in it takes place in the 80s in such a way that it doesn't dispute it. This movie lets you makes you believe that all those panicked parents that thought there were Satanists hiding in underground tunnels waiting to ensnare your family members, it's absolutely true. Now that being said, what sets this movie apart uh, a little bit from the other two films is that those were very contained sort of exorcism haunted house stories. They dealt with the Warrens coming in and doing their thing in a context that they understood, and they were there to nullify whatever supernatural element there was. This is a largely after-the-fact kind of story. It, it opens with an exorcism. The one thing that you notice right off the bat is that it is this movie is less concerned about the realistic world that those first two films were building. Now, in some ways... You could might argue this might feel a little more realistic where it goes and deals more with the police procedural. However, what I'm talking about is in the first films, they leaned away from some of that body contortion. There were people levitating. This one full up has CGI. This kid is twisted up like a John Travolta pretzel in the opening scenes of this movie. <laughs> and it's just almost a little too much. You realize they're just going full out there with the possession stuff. And it has a, a somewhat unrealistic feel. And you have a sequence where this young man, Arnie, kind of does something self-sacrificial and puts himself in the path of this demon. And the Warrens are already involved. And they end up having to move back a little bit because Ed suffers some health, some health concerns. There's a heart attack involved. And that sort of destabilizes them for a little bit while we watch what's happening with this, this young guy who gets caught up in supernatural forces kind of just sort of hijacking his life in a sense and tragedy does ensue the sequence where the murder occurs is maybe one of the creepier scenes in the movie i thought it had a very trippy sort of scattershot feel to it that i enjoyed and then i liked that this movie leans into the murder mystery element where the warrants have to sort of move outside of this family and let them deal with what they're dealing with. So we see Arnie, he's in prison now and he's still experiencing visions. He's still under the thrall of whatever it is that's happened to him. And the Warrens are finding little signs that somebody may have cursed this family. It might not just be a random haunting. It might be something a lot darker and watching them piece those threads together. I enjoy that kind of movie a little bit more than I do the exorcism films. And so I was ready to really get into this, and I was ready for this to be the best of the series. I don't think it quite gets there, largely because I don't think that Chavez is strong a, fil a, a strong a director as Juan, and he's constantly sort of leaning on homages to other films to the point that you, when you watch this Conjuring movie, the direction also seems like he doesn't quite always know what to do with his actors. Farmiga and Wilson are really strong in this, but I think they're just running off the energy from the other movies. And this movie is almost, I don't know if this movie would be very good without them because they provide the emotional center like they did in the others. It feels like a TV pilot, really, you know, in an almost, in almost pleasant way, in some ways, uh, like, a, like X-Files, Millennium, Supernatural, uh, when one of my favorite sort of character actors, John Noble, shows up. It made me think of the Sleepy Hollow TV series from a few years back. And some of the things that happened in that film, in this film, echo that a little bit. And Noble shows up as a priest that was previously working with cult members, pulled out of uh, a cult called the Disciples of the Ram. And guess what? He's got a basement that looks a lot like the Warren's Garage. And I thought that character needed more screen time. I thought Arnie Johnson and what he was going through 
Uh, the movie seems like it should be about him. And he's one of the few characters in the series. He made a choice for the good of someone else that landed him in the supernatural mess. Everyone else stumbled into it, bought the wrong house, stayed too long where they shouldn't have been. This guy tried to do the right thing, and now he's a target, and we just don't really get into his head at all. We don't know much about the cult. We know very little about the witchcraft that's happened. Not the witchcraft, but the the the, the evil entity at the center of this movie. Uh, we don't learn much about them anyway. So we're really kind of driving with the Warrens on this. It's good because Wilson's strong. Farmiga's kind of doing more of the action. Wilson gets to be in the role where he's more vulnerable, I think, than he previously has been. And... So I liked it. I thought it was fun, but it is a bit of a disappointment again for me. I think because it doesn't really, it doesn't have any really good scares. I didn't think in the movie that was one. That's almost the weakest part of this. The scares, in fact, the scenes that are supposed to be supernatural terror come off as a little bit funnier. I mean, my kids were making like MST3K level jokes while this movie was going on. Uh, there's a there's a large corpse that comes to life in the in the morgue, and my son was dropping Kool-Aid man jokes, you know? And so I think that the thing that, that doesn't work as well in this movie is that the thing that many might people, most people might be coming to it for, which are the scares. But I think that the, this is not a giant misstep for me. Uh, this still shows that the Warrens have everything it takes to carry a movie. I think that if Juan was directing this, it had been even stronger than it was. Yeah, I still like that we have a series that has a sort of wholesome core to it in the sense that you have these this family unit fighting against darkness, and these are characters you like. They're trying to help people. And that stuff still goes a long way, and I still liked it. I just wish it had been... If they had taken the things that worked in the other films, that stronger, visceral sense, and tied it to this procedural story, I think it could have been really good. Yeah, I'm going to take this slightly different route than you did on this one because I like this one better than you did. To start off, people that know me will know this. Supernatural is one of my weakest aspects of the genre. Horror, sci-fi, uh, fantasy. Generally, I, I'm not a huge fan of them. Not because I don't like a good ghost or supernatural story. Most of it is usually crap. It's the same old tired. There's no sense of rule sometimes. The worlds are too vague. No, know? no. And, you know, where you see drapes shuddering in the wind. <laughs> and No. So I generally go in either avoiding them or with very low expectations. And I really like this film. Uh, and one of the reasons I like the film is I love the atmosphere that was built. Yes, it's the satanic panic. Yes, you know it says it's based on a true story. Well, loosely. I, and, I, and I use the term air quotes, loosely. But I like the kind of universe it created because like Nathan, I like the serial police investigation angle to the story. I like the search I like them going through files. I like them going to the police station. Good old-fashioned detective work. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it, it, it wasn't from a microfiche. You had a file, okay? It wasn't from a memory stick, like in Spiral. You had to open the file and touch the evidence. Now, of course, it's a fiction movie, and, you know, it's not real evidence. But I like that they went through that. You have to climb down in that basement. 
they had to go down underneath. There was crawling underneath to find a certain something under a house. Those are my favorite scenes. That kind of stuff. Them driving driving her past the crime scene just to test her to see if she knew where it was. I love that kind of stuff. See, I, I love the atmosphere that was created. I love a satanic panic film. I love that comedy that came out last year or maybe two years ago called Satanic Panic. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was a fun one. I like that genre. Yes. Because it's usually either really grim or taken with tongue planted firmly in cheek. Either way, if they're done right, they're they're done well. This is a much and, better movie than that other one that they attempted to do, Deliver Us From Evil. Oh, um, yeah. I, I saw that one in the theater. Uh, yeah, yeah. I did. I, one of the first dates I took my wife to, and she's like, Bill, it's going to be a while before I go to another horror movie with you. Okay, I, I get it. That was a slog. This is not. It was nice to see John Noble. And those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans uh, will know him. And also, if you know that series, The Boys, it's on Prime, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, Bo- the Boys, yeah. He's in that one. And and he has a, a an underutilized character. I would agree. He was great at, on the TV show, one of my favorite science fiction TV shows, Fringe, on Fox. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Bill. It was really good. He was the, he was the primary star, he and Joshua Jackson. I thought that Patrick Wilson was very good in this film. And partly because he suffers a heart attack in the film, he has to take a step back. So they use him a little more sparingly, not because he's not a good actor or not because he isn't used in the role, but because of the way the story is set up, Vera Farmiga kind of takes the front. Wilson's good at playing a guy who can who shows vulnerabilities. And he gets to yeah. do that here. He's not just Ed Warren, demon hunter. He he got no. he knows that, you know, it's as likely that cheeseburgers are going to take him out of Satan. Yeah, like there's there's a certain point where they're going through a forest. And I don't want to get too far into it, but Vera Farmiga takes the lead in it. And the scene is a little bit fantastic. Oh, oh what do you mean? Fantastic in the Conjuring? Yeah, it is. But <laughs> it showed that Ed literally let her take the lead. So when they used him, they used him to greater impact because he wasn't the leading man in every role until a certain point in the film where he channels his inner John or or Jack Nicholson from the shining, which I'm sure those that dislike the film will point to that particular aspect of the film. I didn't mind it. I thought it showed a a part of his character kind of just losing it and i like that yeah I, I didn't mind it i think the problem is it just so reminds you of the other thing yeah that it distracts from the thing you're watching it does, but usually in the conjuring films are kind of the prim and proper he always has a button-up shirt she's got a blouse on here he pops the buttons off his shirt and just you got to watch it well and i like the scene when they're talking about going under that basement and he says but you're going to get your dress dirty. And she says, hold my purse. <laughs> yeah, and he does. Good husband holds the purse. And he every, does. He does. And, and every man out there, you may not admit it to your buddies, but you've all held that purse before. So <laughs> Look, the Warrens, the way Farmiga and Wilson play the Warrens, that stuff's like 10 out of 10 stuff. And, and I, I, I loved the atmosphere created. It was dark. At no point in this film did you feel good. You'd never thought, okay, there's the light coming out from outside the trees and 
the guy's going to get the girl and everybody's going to kiss and make up. And it's, you didn't get that. There's feeling. about three minutes of that before the crap hits the fan. Well, on, that's it. <laughs> about, that's about it. Three minutes out of 98 or whatever it is. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I, lo- I like this film. And there's a couple aspects I like. I love the soundtrack. Uh, at a certain point on his record player, he's playing Blondie's Call Me. At a certain point, uh, Elvis's Suspicious Minds come up. And I thought automatically of uh, Army of Army of the Dead, because that played a role in both of these films. But th- yes, th- that yes, scene that yes. Nathan referred to with the uh, very large naked man running in the morgue, I got a kick out of that. I cracked up with that, though. I thought that was a funny scene. My son says, <laughs> oh, there's a big boy. <laughs> but I like the mood. I like the cult angle. I like the proce- police procedural. My One of the criticisms I had is they didn't put enough time into the court case yes oh my gosh yes yes i have a background i have a a college diploma in paralegal i'm legally allowed to go through contracts and sign off on things in a prior lifetime of mine i would have loved to have seen more of that i love a good courtroom drama this could have gone more of an exorcism of emily rose and i would have been happy with that I, I, I can appreciate the brevity, as I was telling Nathan before, that this didn't become a Zack Snyder three-hour film. Because you could have gone transcript by transcript, and it would have gone too long. But I would like to have had more than a two-minute footnote at the end of the film. They have the materials here. I think that's the difference. Is yeah. They could, they could, we could have spent more time with that boy in jail and what was happening to him. We could have spent more time with those police detectives that the Warrens meet. Like, I don't think those, those things would have slowed the film down because the, 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 the meat was there and they just sort of gloss over it. That's why it felt like a pilot to me. You know, it felt like, Hey, this could have been a mini series on HBO, even though we've got these other conjuring movies, it just fell up in the air. It's not the same kind of movie as those, as those first two movies. It isn't a big jump out at you. Gotta see it in the theater theatrical film it might might work perfectly well that way but this one worked also perfectly well on the small screen and i almost want i really with me i think it's down to director i think if james wanted done this or even i've mentioned fallen now uh we talked about police procedural and the and the courtroom thriller uh, a movie like primal fear the director gregory hoblet i mean he's a guy that could have done something with this uh, there were other directors, uh, mentioned Sandberg, who did Lights Out, could have done something with it. Chavez had really only done one other movie, so he seems like an odd choice for this. But I don't think that he – this is not scuttling the Conjuring universe. I just want a little bit more from it because the baseline, to me, this particular case was juicier than the ones in the other two movies. And let's just say this. I did not know that Lorraine keeps heart pills in her locket. Who knew that? <laughs> that was cool though right it's neat that was neat and the, the one other part stick with it till after the credits stick with the film till the credits are rolling because they play the actual tape used in the exorcism oh yes 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 i did see that okay because i was thinking i was like wait i missed something no watch watch that because because if if you're somebody who, as soon as you see that first directed by, and then you go to the washroom or wash your hands, stick with it because it does add a layer of reality and creepiness to it. I wouldn't say again, it's not uh, based on a historical document, note for note, word for word or whatever. 
but it does add that little bit extra. What is your rating on this one, Bill? On this one, I give an eight out of ten. Nice, that's that's hot. Be- because I'm this to me, not being a supernatural guy. Yeah, there were moments where it was hokey. Yes, there were moments where they kind of went a little too far one way left, one way right. But as far as this genre of film, it's held me the whole time, and I loved the atmosphere. Is it safe to say this is your favorite of the three Conjuring films? I think it is. I thought number one was good. I thought number two, the second half, went way off the cliff. And I liked this one much better. I thought number two got way too fantastic in the film. See, I actually like, I think I liked two the best because it kind of, uh, it did, it does, does go for some of the sound of fury. I thought they were very strong in it. I thought the family element of that family um, was strong. I like both of the first movies very much. And I do still like this movie. I, uh, for me, it's a 6.5. I, I kind of, I was a little bit lower on it, I think, when I first saw it. Uh, and I do think that if you're really looking at the direction, the movie just sometimes feels like it doesn't have, yes, there's mood and atmosphere, but it doesn't have the, as much style and structure that, that Juan brought to it. There's not, there isn't a very firm hand sort of moving this along on the directorial end. And so there are scenes here with some of the actors where you feel like they're just like, you stand there, you stand there, I'm going to put the camera here. And that's kind of helps with the TV feel of it. Now that being... If you like a film that kind of harkens you back to the late 70s, early 80s, this kind of gets you in that groove. That's your jam, if you like that. Yeah, yeah, it, kind of, it does. It does head in that direction. And uh, again, it is competently made. I just wish it had been a little more artistically made. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I think there were some strong pacing issues with this yeah. film. I thought the pacing was uh, left a lot to be desired. If Phil, it, it's closer, although it's still better than all of them. It's closer to the the Conjuring spinoff movies than it is the the main universe movies this doesn't this feels a little bit more like those than it does the legitimate third conjuring movie uh but i did enjoy it i did think it was definitely worth seeing and uh i would recommend it i i liked it i i the other one that i liked of the series was the annabelle comes home that also dealt with the warrens it was a little more of almost a a younger audience. I did like that. Was that was that the second? Was that the second Annabelle? Uh, I like the second Annabelle too. The second Annabelle was the one that took place I at the like Spanish, um, like uh, orphanage. The third one yeah, is I the like one that, that where, where they the kid. It's actually at the Warrens' home. They let it loose, and all these the demons in that room kind of come out. Oh yeah, yeah, that one was decent. Like too, supernatural yeah. Jumanji or something. I guess Jumanji, supernatural Jumanji, demonic Jumanji. The first, the first one wasn't any hell. I didn't find. No, it. no, no, no. I but I think that the 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 Annabelle comes home was a fun one, and this is fun too. I want them to find a way to to marry more of the of, of what they were doing in this movie in terms of taking it out of the pure exorcism angle with stronger. Uh, Stronger storytelling. Yeah, one of the areas that we really haven't paid enough attention to is the quality of short films that are out there, be it horror, be it sci-fi, be it drama, be it police serial. There's a lot of good short films that ultimately either become long-form motion pictures or are based upon previously existing films. 
Now, the one I'm about to do falls in the latter. And it's a short film from 2021. It literally came out on the 28th of May called It's Me, Billy. No, it has nothing to do with me. The reference to the uh, in the title is one that a lot of people might get, or you might not. It's to the 1974 classic Bob Clark film, Black Christmas. And if you're familiar with Black Christmas, it involves... I don't want to give it all away if you haven't seen it, but you know what? If you haven't seen it, then watching this won't really make much sense to you at all. There is a killer in the attic called Billy. And Billy uses the telephone to give some pretty graphic um, prank phone calls. Holiday phone messages. Calls. <laughs> Holiday messages to a frat house in Toronto with Olivia Hussey and Andrea Martin and Margot Kidder. And it's a, it's an absolutely amazing film. It's in my top 10 horror films of all time. It might very well be among my top 10 films, period, of all time. Fantastic, Fantastic. movie. Kier DeLay is in it, too, from uh, 2001, The Space Odyssey. The, the, John Saxon. Yeah, yeah, John Saxon. Is, plays an amazing police officer. And there's a scene inside the station involving a phone number that I don't care how politically correct or unpolitically correct, it will crack you up. So it is a super fun film. Anyways... So there is a director, a directors, Bruce Dale and Dave McRae, that have created this 42-minute short film. Now, the actual runtime is probably about 35 to 40 minutes, and the rest are credits. It was a crowdfunded short film that pretends, not pretends, is their version of a sequel to the original. Because we're all aware there was the 2006, I believe it was, was the remake, and then the 2019 remake, which we shall not speak of in these parts. This one is one that takes place literally 47 years later. And I'll give you the short synopsis on IMDb, although it's honestly not that short. It's Me, Billy is a short Black Christmas fan and tribute film based on the 1974 Canadian horror classic Black Christmas. The film is an unofficial sequel set nearly 50 years after the events of the first movie and follows the granddaughter of Jess Bradford. So in the original, Olivia Hussey is one of the, to give it away, uh, surviving member of attacks on a sorority house shot in the University of Toronto. And it follows the story of her granddaughter in 2021 going back to see her grandma. And she hadn't seen her grandma for a while. So her and her friends go to grandma's house. Now this was shot by Bruce Dale and Dave McRae. Dave McRae has his own uh, podcast that's shot out everywhere. Uh, he's out of Toronto and Bruce Dale is as well. Crowdfunded. And I was watching one of his podcasts. He just put it out the other day, like a live stream. And he actually went to the house where the original Black Christmas was taking place. It's not a real sorority house. It's an actual house in Toronto. And this house might have people ringing on their door all the time. Because he actually asked them and said, can I just basically walk in, see the place and leave? And the guy and abruptly, yeah, please live in your attic. Yeah. And, and the guy abruptly said, no. And you can understand because the guy's probably got this for the last 50 years. Every Tom, Dick and Harry who's seen the story is knocking on their door. So he wasn't able to see it. Okay. <laughs> the house other than the outside, but 
it has a beautiful cinematography. This is perhaps the best crowd-funded short I've ever seen. Because a lot of people doing a crowd-funded uh, fan film, oftentimes the money comes up short. And with the best of intentions, they do their best job at it. But it usually looks it. This one is done exceptionally well. It stars Dave McRae, the director, simply as the voice of Billy. It has Malaika Henny Hamadi, Victoria Marrow, Shelby Handley, and Carol Coltman as the older neighbor. So a young woman goes back to the house of her grandmother, who is Olivia Hussey, who, after her survival of the attack, became an author, wrote a book about it, and recently has passed on. And Victoria Merrow plays the character of, I'm just getting the name of her character, Sam. She's going back to the house for the first time since grandma's died. And she was close to her. And there's a very touching moment. This takes place, I'm going to say, around Christmas time because there's a Christmas tree up. Duh. And there is a ornament on the Christmas tree that has something to the effect of granddaughters and grandmothers are very close. It's it, so it kind of hurts the heartstrings. Well, they go up together and the girls begin, you know, they chit chat. There's a bit of talk about past times and they haven't, some of the two friends of hers hadn't been in the house for many years and they're reminiscing and they're having dinner and they're having some girl talk, etc. And they start to get prank phone calls. And is it Billy? Was he actually caught way back when? Was he disposed of way back when? Has justice been prevailed way back when? It's built entirely on tension, on atmosphere. It is beautifully shot. It is shot in Almont, Ontario. Anybody who knows Ontario, it's Eastern Ontario kind of southeast of Ottawa. And it's a beautiful, picturesque snowfall. Like they picked a great house to, and you get it. You always get one of these drone shots, but this one is done wonderfully. And so you kind of get the girls, I'll give it right away, begin to get plucked off one by one. Well, there's only three of them. So two of them do. And then it's Sam obviously at the end. I'm not going to say whether she survives or not. I will say that the killer is a twist, as was the original. And there is some showing of Billy. But that's all I'm going to tell you. I want you to watch the film. This was brought to my attention by Joel Robertson the awesome podcaster from Horror Movie Podcast and Retro Movie Geek. He sent me a message and said, Bill, I know you're from Canada. I know you love the first film. I And Dave, and Joel was actually a fan of Dave McRae's and has followed him and said, you got to watch this film. And it's only 42 minutes. And as I said, it's probably only about 38 minutes of runtime. It's on YouTube. He put it on there on purpose. It's widely available. It's got a good soundtrack. The only downside that I saw was in her house, she's still using a rotary phone. 
2021. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in my area, you can't even get service for a rotary phone anymore. So I don't know what's going on in the eastern part of Ontario or I don't know, whatever. But it's it's bloody to a point. It's atmospheric. It's dark. It works on shadows. And especially with the light, it's almost purely driven snow that's on the outside. And you kind of see some of the quirky characters of the neighbor. I suggest putting the time in for 35 minutes. It's well worth watching. And Bruce did, uh, Bruce and Dave did say that if this is well received and funding comes their way, this could be kind of a, a chapter situation where the story continues on in 35 to 40 minute short films. So I think it's well worth you checking. What's your rating on this one, Dave? I, Oh my God! I've done it again, Bill. Oh my God! What is your rating on this, Bill? I don't even talk to Dave. I will give this an eight and a half to a nine out of ten. Nice for a a short form format. This is darn near perfection in terms of quality of uh, the production and quality of the acting and of the story. And I know it's a follow-up, but it's probably safe to say that it is, in your opinion, better than the the two remakes that we've had of oh, Black Christmas. Oh, I, I, I've, <laughs> you know, like the first remake was, eh, the, the second one with the whole the feminism angle, and they basically just used Black Christmas as the title to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I disliked the 2006, and I disliked the 2000, uh, 2019 one as well. Yeah, but. the 2006 was tolerable. The The last one... Uh, I don't know. It was some pretty skeevy stuff in the 2006 one. <laughs> but, so it, very quickly, uh, Black Christmas, an interesting thing Black Christmas with me is this is not a movie I grew up watching. Uh, I had never actually seen it. I was aware of it and knew of it and knew of its role and its place in horror history. However, it was only like... 20, I want to say 2016, maybe, that I had finally, uh, the kids were off of my parents, and my wife and I were sitting down to wrap Christmas presents, and we put the movie on, expecting it to basically be a background sort of slasher that we glanced up at and watched for a bit, and then within about 20 or 30 minutes, we ended up just sitting all the wrapping, we're sitting in a big pile of wrapping paper, got no presents wrapped, <laughs> But did get really sucked into this movie. It's a like you had you had mentioned, uh, Bill. It's an extraordinarily well made movie. The original is. Uh, Bob Clark makes it in such a way where it doesn't feel it is proto slasher in a sense because you know it's still pre Halloween and things like that. Has and this some, is the, this is the same director from a Christmas story. Yeah, that's a good yes from a Christmas story. And there's a lot of sort of crossover, like there's almost a little of a giallo feel to it. There's uh, because that was more of what they had to work with in terms of the uh, inspiration, and then even like some some Agatha Christie, I think you know more of those things at play. Val Luton, that kind of stuff at play, and and the shots are amazing, as you point out, the sound design, all of that's great, and I love that it sounds like that this short film. Uh, you know, a lot of times fan films were really worried about because you'll have the Jason uh, Friday the 13th fan films or the Freddy. So what they're or the alien fan films. And what they're trying to get right there is the costumes. Right. It's like so much work is going into the costumes. So I liked it with Black Christmas. You don't really have the costumes. You've got the voice on the phone. You have the atmosphere and those elements. So I'm really excited to see it. I just haven't had a moment to kind of yeah. squeeze it in yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. I, and I, it's free. I have no doubt you'll be sending me a message in a week and say, yeah, that was pretty good. 
Oh yeah, I, I I'm really excited about it because it sounds like it's firing on all the cylinders. It's doing um, what it should do, and it is honoring what worked about that first movie. And I think that what the people who made the other two movies, the two remakes, didn't understand or didn't really care about the atmospheric strengths of that original film. Because to me, that's the movie's legacy. It's not, oh, we need a killer in a house picking people off. And I should mention that Dave McRae, talking about fan films, has directed seven Halloween short films. Wow. I wonder if they're any good. Together they directed one called Haddonfield Reaper. So, you know, he kind of has experience doing the fan film homage kind of thing. But I haven't seen those other ones. I can't speak to them. I'm sure they are available either on YouTube or on a site he hosts. But I'm. it does show that either he's learned from them or he's really stepped it up on this one because this one was uh, fantastic. That's very cool. That's awesome. And I really do look forward to it. So now, and for me, this movie is was probably in my household, the movie I'm about to review, is a movie that probably became... Due to it getting pushed back, due to COVID, due to uh, my entire family kind of getting it, sitting down and watching it while we were in quarantine, that this this movie, the sequel, is probably the Bartleball family's most anticipated movie of 2021, maybe behind Dune. And I don't know if all my family members are as much into wanting to see Dune as I am. But this is A Quiet Place Part 2. And we watched, we kind of made the decision that we were going to show it to the kids a little bit la- uh, last year, probably around this time. And they, we, were, we weren't we were quite certain. We thought it would freak them out a little bit. Uh, and it did to some extent, but in some of the best ways, they were really into it. And immediately as soon as it was over, my daughter was like, now we can watch A Quiet Place 2, which at that point was only, um, you know, it had been pushed back, but it was now a few months away from coming out. Then it got pushed to October, and it's been pushed all the way Memorial Day weekend. And we went out to see it. It was the first movie uh, that here locally in Baltimore that we went back to the indoor theaters to see. And we went to the Senator Theater, which is a big movie house down here, to see it. And, uh, man, what an awesome experience just to be back at the theater. I mean, we went to the concession stand and bought everything just just to support them and just to be so glad to be back at the theater. So that in and of itself... Uh, take that for what you will. That probably colored my perspective a little bit. It was great just to be with the family, be out. It was kind of a somewhat rainy day. And right next to Bill, uh, I sent you a message about this, is the Clark Burger, which is a Canadian burger place. So my son got to try out some uh, poutine. Oh, and I was going to say, squeaky what, cheese curds. what were the returns on the poutine? Was it done with, did it do it justice? Uh, see, the problem is I have never had, I've never been in Canada and had Canadian poutine, but this was very tasty. I mean, it's really good, crunchy um, fries, like uh, like cut perfectly, and then the gravy and the cheese curds were really, really good because as, it's, lo- as long as they're using authentic cheese curds, it's beef gravy and it's fresh cut fries. You're all it's a, it's all three of those things because yeah. I've 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 got it at other places down here in in uh, you know in uh, the states, and it's usually like just a bunch of cheese. With some gravy, well, like you know, it's, it's, it's shredded it's so cheese. Bad. Or it's so bad that yeah. up here, like at Burger King, you can get it, but it's uh, yeah, it, it's not the same. This is this seems like a legit joint, and their burgers are top notch. But okay. I'll stop reviewing the burgers. <laughs> but it's good. <laughs> it's a good place. Uh, this is the sequel to, like I say, 2018's A Quiet Place, 
and which uh, was a movie I really enjoyed. I don't want to get into too much for people who maybe haven't seen it. And this this review will be spoiler free to an extent. We're going to talk about some of the events that happened in the first film. I don't think it's too much to say that a quiet place sort of operates as a again a very atmospheric high tension thriller and it also works as a creature feature i don't think there's those two things were probably in doubt even after the first trailer and of course working on the concept that these characters live in a world that has been decimated we're not entirely sure by what but we know one thing which is that making too much noise is going to get you killed in pretty quick grisly fashion and i was gonna say nathan is this pg-13 this is PG-13. The first film was PG-13. This film film is PG-13. I would say that the level of PG-13 is the same between both films. That's one thing that's interesting here. They do amp up a little bit of the tension, but my kids were perfectly fine with this. I was perfectly fine with showing it to them. To the extent that the film even suggests anything more than it did in the original film, It uh, one thing, John Krasinski has directed both of them. I think Krasinski has a real future in these uh, doing particularly thrillers because he can do a lot of suggestion. He can... He can place certain things in certain ways and and tell you what you need to know and you can look over and realize that hey it just went over somebody else's head or that maybe not everybody got everybody got it but that he'll scoop those people up on the way through to the next sequence so there were certain things where my heart's in my chest i know what's happening my son is paying attention to something entirely different uh and that's a pretty gifted filmmaker that can do that i'll get into a little more detail about it but yes if you saw the first film if you were wondering is this one going to be too much for me no, is it more intense? They do manage to ramp up some of these scenes, but it is in the same piece as the first movie. The thrill ride you have with the first one, it's going to be a similar experience uh, to this, I think. The plot here, I'm not even going to too much because if you've seen the first Quiet Place, you know you're dealing with this family, the Abbots, a, a, a unit that is trying to weather whatever has happened here. And, they, and I think one of the benefits of the first film was the world building that Krasinski did at the same time as a character building. We see this farmhouse where these people live and how the habits and the things they have to go through in order to ensure that they are leaving as as small a sonic footprint as possible so they do not attract the attention of whatever is out there. Because we know, and we have already seen early on in the film, that that can be devastating. And the tension that is built through that and as you know bill i know you've seen the movie and i know that you enjoyed it that the interactions with these characters are very strong particularly the relationships krasinski and emily blunt who are married in real life really bring uh, some strength to that to that marriage in the first film they really chemistry is great there for me the big standout was millicent simmons who plays uh regan abbott she is the daughter and she is fortuitously for them she was born deaf i say fortuitously because this family has been dealing with has been signing to one another has been living without sound to some extent for quite a bit even before this this uh cataclysm occurs so they're almost prepped and ready for it and we get a little bit of that at the start of a quiet place too so quiet place two picks up uh storyline wise essentially right where the other film leaves off so if you watch that other film and it leaves you with that breathless okay let's we're ready to go you're ready to go at the start of this film. But what it does briefly is it goes and flashes back. And if, if you've seen the first film, you know that the film counts down days. And we're on day 400 and something early on in that film. We go back to day one for about 10 or 15 
really excellent minutes that I think uh, is very smart what Krasinski does here. He ties together a lot of character pieces for us. He sets up where the movie is going. He gives us a little more information than we previously had, and he sets the stakes out all at the beginning, and he does it with a flashback that feels fresh, even though we've learned a lot of things about this world by the time the first movie wraps up. And so when those when that sequence is done, boom, we're back right where we left off. And from that point on, Quiet Place 2 is at a level of quality and caliber with the first movie. And in some ways, there's a lot about this movie I liked even more because it expands this world. We get to see what's beyond that farmhouse to an extent in a measured way. We get to see some new characters. We do get to see a little bit of what the rest of humanity looks like and what has happened with it. And uh, one of the one of the faces we get to meet is Killian Murphy, who's really good here. Uh, he's had a hand at this sort of apocalypse thing before. Uh, the, the the movie that this probably seems most like is Twenty Eight Days Later. You know, in his in his filmography, and he's he's strong here as a survivor who has seen enough that he doesn't care to see anymore or really be involved in anything else. And so when the Abbots show up at his doorstep. They, we, we realize that they do know him. He's not uh, a stranger to them. And they are reconnecting for the first time since this all happened. That's all I'm really going to say about how that plot starts. Uh, and except to say that Millicent Simmons here, who was the standout in the first film playing the daughter, who had some tension with her father in that film, in a way that was realistic, not in a way that felt contrived, that she gets to be the standout again here. And even in a greater way, she really becomes the character that sort of the film gets behind and sort of builds momentum for. And all of those character pieces and those family dynamics are happening in the first movie. One of the big uh, lines that stood out to me in the first film that was used in the trailers and becomes sort of a centerpiece, because there aren't very many lines of dialogue in the film, right? In either film. There's more in this one than there was in the first one. But the line that spoken by the parents says, who who are we if we can't protect them? You know, speaking about the children, who, who are we if we can't make a life for our kids that's safe. And that's a thought I think most parents have probably had in their lives. And that one echoed through that whole first film. In this film, there's a point when Killian Murphy says, the people that are left now aren't worth saving. And that sort of becomes a different reverberation. And we have to figure out what side are we on here. And Millicent Simmons steps into the middle of that, carrying a lot of the same weight and the same gravity that Krasinski's father Abbott did in the first film and the set pieces here ramped the tension up the there's lots of sequences where suspenseful crazy life or death situations are happening on three tiers at once we're following three separate sets of people trying to do three different things and the way they're intercut is masterful because we don't we don't lose focus on any one of them, and the, you build the tension to this crescendo, and the the edits keep getting shorter and shorter. You know, the lapse between stories keeps getting shorter and shorter, and it's really masterfully done. It's as entertaining as the first movie. Again, I think it expands the world and it expands the themes of what's happening here. And I'm in a in an apocalypse thriller like this, particularly when you've introduced the elements. The question is, well, how can the creatures still be mysterious and scary now that we know them? Uh, they're not doing anything different, so how do they maintain a sense of dread? Uh, we know what this world is like. What's left for us to discover? The movie doesn't worry about trying to to wow us with new things. It just keeps us pushed through this story 
in a very skillful way. And a lot of that is down to the direction and the acting. Emily Blunt is terrific again. Noel Jupe is, Noah Jupe is really good. And Killian Murphy's great. Jamin Hansu shows up later in the film. He's good too in his in his role, even though it's a little bit truncated. It's, it's closer towards the end of the film. But I think you're going to find a lot to like here as a thrill ride. This movie is in no way inferior to the first movie. Will you like it as much? I don't know. That's really going to depend. I've talked to some people that enjoyed it more. Some people who didn't like it quite as much. Uh, it is does have a feeling of abruptness when you get towards the end because I think not unlike the John Wick series where they've decided to tell a little bit of a story at a time and focus on making his action-packed and build this world on the go. This is an on-the-go movie. So at some point when it ends, it's never hitting the brakes to ease down and get you to the end. It's just going to stop. It's going to bust through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and keep on going. And, and where it goes will be in Quiet Place 3. So you have to be prepared for that. Basically, you walk out of the movie thinking, man, I wanted a little bit more, which I don't think is really a bad way to be. Oh, my, my whole family enjoyed it. I think one of the things I liked about this is the themes are strong and they're able to build these themes to the point where it almost feels mythic and almost allegorical. You have a lot of things going on. There are a lot of themes here that dovetail with, uh, with, with faith-based elements, not, not, not on the face of it, but again, allegorically speaking, we see people who have to, uh, to either choose to have faith or to back off. And they've seen so much darkness that can they really uh, put their hope in anything? We see families who are striving to, to rise up out of the shadow of their, their situations of, of, of the people who came before them. And, and what legacy do parents actually leave? That question gets answered from the first movie gets answered a little bit in this one. Uh, but put that aside. And this is a, a movie that's scary in the same way that the Jurassic, the early Jurassic park movies were scary. It's a scary in the way that jaws is scary and it'll keep you, keep your kind of heart pounding and your, and the, the pulse pounding all the way through. So I really enjoyed it. I'm giving this one an 8.5. I think it's just as strong as the first movie. And I'm ready for A Quiet Place 3. Sounds like I need to go see this. I wish I had a theater to go to, but I wish I needed <laughs> to see this. Now, now, the one question I did have is the uh, child in the first one, I can't recall if it was a baby boy or girl. Did, did that child age in this one? <laughs> that is a great question because the, essentially this film takes up and the same moment where the last movie ended. And so Millicent um, and Noah both are older, you know, okay. and you can't do anything about it, but they just don't kind of address it. And Emily Blunt's a little bit older. She doesn't look any older to me, but uh, but the child has obviously been subbed in. So there's still a baby. She's not, she's not carrying around a two-year-old in her arms or anything. <laughs> but that, it's a good point that you bring up because that is one of the things that kind of, it does give you a strange sort of, dissonance sometimes because you feel like be, that they maybe they've been walking on that road for a while and yet when we look at the time frame we realize there's a couple of things where people mention time frames and you're like some of this stuff doesn't seem to add up but i think part of that is you're looking at children that you intuitively know are older than the last time you saw them and actually i think a good way to watch this movie is actually to see the first one as soon or as close in proximity as you can because it was a rainy afternoon we actually watched the first one at home again, directly before going to see this one. And I actually think it amplified the experience because this movie is gathering up all those emotions. It isn't trying to be its own piece. It wants to be connected. It wants to enrich your experience from the first one. Again, like the John Wick films, if you've seen those, you know that you really can't watch John Wick or John Wick, John Wick 2 and 3 and really expect to get the full amount of measure of entertainment from them because they are so tightly uh, 
ensconced in the previous films. You know, they want to create this experience that is very interconnected. That's what's happening in this movie. But no, they definitely have a baby. (laughs) Now, if somebody walked into this having not seen the first one, could they watch it? Do they pull an army of darkness where they kind of give you a review like the evil deads or, or would you be lost? So that's the genius of, and that's another good question, Bill. That's the kind of genius of those first 10 minutes, because those 10 minutes, like I said, they go back to day one. And so they can show you like typically a movie might rehash the last four or five minutes of the previous film. They go back to day one. They give you everything that you would need to know. They let you know what this family dynamic looks like right there. And so even though you don't see an ounce of anything from the rest of the first film, if I were to walk into this and never seen the others, I would know all the stakes. I would know everything that had happened. I would get a picture of it without seeing a single ounce of reusable footage. And it would still leave the first movie to be a kind of... um, a new experience for me. When I when I say that you need to kind of see both of them is if you you aren't going to have the full rich experience if you don't see part one, but you can walk into part two, see the entire movie, get the entire story, and then go back to one and it be a fresh experience for you, which very rarely can that happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the only other one I could think of is maybe Alien, Aliens. You could probably get the same thing. Yeah, and Aliens kind of has the yeah, yeah. You're 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 exactly right. They're they're working. They're a little bit looser, but yes, that's a that's a that's a good example too. I mean, heck, if you if you're getting compared to Alien and Aliens, you're doing something right, right? I, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But uh, the other the follow up question to that is, if you have seen the first one, the first ten minutes won't bore you. Oh no, no, no! Because as I'm saying, it goes back to day one. You want to know this information too. But what happens in day one? It explains things that we learned filtered through the hour and a half so of the first movie, right? Okay. So this 10, it's just, it's really an interesting, uh, it, 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 he keeps it simple. You know, this isn't like, this isn't mind-blowingly original the way in which he does it. But the way in which they stage it is such that I'm watching this family survive the first days. And so I'm with them. I know what their dynamic looks like. I know what every one of those people is doing. And then when I pick up with them, I know things have changed for them, but I know all I need to know is they're walking down that road away from that farmhouse. Yeah, so it's, 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 yeah. it's not like, you know, some of the Star Wars films where if you didn't see the first one, you didn't, you had to fill in the gaps of all these interplanetary wars and, you know, you didn't yes. have to deal with any of that. I would say absolutely see the first one if you can before. Uh, it, no, you're, it, yes, this, and, and what I like is it, it, it amps up the scale. So what you're seeing on day one is some is more of the sort of like disaster thriller kind of things that would have been just a little too big for that first movie with all the mystery that they were trying to keep, you know. Now, could, back you, for could us. you see somebody making legit argument? This isn't a horror. This is a drama. I mean, anyone can make that if they want, but let's face it: this movie is a thriller. <laughs> it is a horror film. It has horror. If this is not a horror movie, neither is Alien. <laughs> Neither is the thing, and neither is Jaws. And then, okay. if you, if those movies don't exist in the horror genre, I don't want any part of it. So, <laughs> gotcha, I gotcha. So, in other words, you're saying people, 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 go see this film. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a great movie, and it's a good one. If you're ready to go back to the theater, this is a good one. It utilizes everything. Uh, it reminded me again. I thought, man, this is why I do enjoy going to the theater. But man, I I, I went to a theater with it. We'll kick you out, children or loud people uh, will get kicked out if you're making a lot of noise. And don't, like, the problem with these two movies, they rely so much on that absence of sound 
and then the amplification of sound when it comes that you don't really want to see this in a theater full of talky people. No, I don't think we have that case right now, but it, yeah. it's almost the case where no sound is the sound. It's exactly right. Exactly right. If someone, if someone farts in the theater, doesn't scare the piss out of you. So, <laughs> so that's what I got. I'm so really don't, don't drop your cell phone in the aisle. Yes. Yeah. So 8.5 for me, I would very, which, which for, for, for people who want to know, that's about what I rated the first movie. Um, did you? What was your rating on the first movie, Bill? Do you remember? I, I can't recall. I saw it years ago. I well, not that many years ago. <laughs> like I, I, three years ago. <laughs> three years ago, literally. But it was within like a week of it coming out. So yeah, uh, I would get. I would have said I was in the eight to eight and a half range, probably. Yeah, yeah, very good movie. And again, I'm really excited to see um, more of what Krasinski would do, would do and if he would want to continue this story because normally I don't feel this way, but I would absolutely be interested in seeing more in this world. And again, Millicent Simmons can't say enough. She is growing into quite a fine actress and she's taking this character and really building an interesting person out of them. So uh, definitely see the movie. Bill, what do you have up next? So from that, I'm going to make it so if you want to cut and chop. Yeah, I'm saying let's just do this. It's nine o'clock, so just okay. do your next just review and we'll one. end it. Yep. Okay. You know what? I'll go. You know what? I'll just go with this one just because I got it up. I'm going to go with 1994's Virgin Hunters. Oh, no. <laughs> also known as Test Tube Teens from the year 2000. See, I like the alliteration there. That one slides right. That just slides <laughs> off the tongue. That's right in. That's so, creepy to say, but yeah. The, the story is the uh, distributor of the film thought Virgin Hunters, as released in some parts, you know, depending upon what part of the country or part of the world you're in, would portray the wrong type of image and or wouldn't get played somewhere else. So they came up with this much longer title. I have two totally different movies in mind as I hear those two titles. I mean, the other one sounds almost like a like a serial killer or something kind of, or, or something f- much racier, where Test Tube Teens feels like you're following in that Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and kind of goofy B-movie, late-night Cinemax vibe. By the way, I actually have seen this movie, and I think the latter is, is probably true. <laughs> So I'll give you what IMDb calls their storyline. In, the fu- <laughs> in the future, corporations have taken over the world and banned sex. A group of rebellious high school students devise a way to go back in time and change history to prevent that from happening. So essentially, it's a mishmash of genres. You've got your sci-fi. You've got your time travel. You've got your sex comedy. You've got your adventure element, and you've got your just 80s beach party kind of film. All <laughs> kind of thrown into one, okay? Now, this is, I'm telling you straight up front, this is a full moon production. Stravaganza. So, so Charles Band has his hand all over this film. All up in it. <laughs> up in there and everywhere. And there are all kinds of stories about what Band did to get some of this done. It was directed by David Decotu, who, for some reason in this film, is is known as Ellen Kebet. So not only does he change his name, he changes his sex. What advantage that gives, I'm not quite sure, but okay. Written by Kenneth J. Hall, and it stars the one and only Morgan Fairchild, who Indeed. is world-renowned, not so much anymore, I guess. Uh, Ian Abercrombie who you would know from many, many uh, appearances, including Army of Darkness, and as I know him most, 
Mr. Pitt in Seinfeld. Yeah, as you say, Seinfeld and Army of Darkness come to mind. He was also in Puppet Masters. Yeah, he's been in a whole lot. Like, he's our good actor, but he's one of those actors that he's got a great sense of humor and he's a physical comedian where you can see what his face portrays gives off a lot. So he's really good for these kind of roles. He's almost in the George Carlin, what George Carlin was to uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's what he is here. He's like the teacher who kind of gets them off on their adventure. Yeah. We have Brian Bremer is the only other actor of note who was in Pumpkinhead and he was in season two of The Walking Dead. And by the way, this film did have a sequel in 2016. What? So band really goes back to the well, doesn't he? For movies no one's ever remembered. 22 years later, they went for the sequel as a cult hit of the first time around. Let's go for a sequel. So you're probably saying, Bill, how did I find this? We know how you found it. No, no, it it wasn't Tubi. (laughs) This was actually a YouTube find. I was like, what a wacky title. I got to look into this. I have a rule. Some of you might know. If I'm 20 minutes in, I have to watch the whole thing. So I got to the point where I was 20 minutes in. I had to finish the whole thing. So here's how it opens. And Nathan, jump in any point. You've seen this. I don't remember much about it. (laughs) Well, if you were of a certain impressionable age, you probably would. I remember Morgan Fairchild. I remember that. It opens with Abercrombie teaching history class in the future. And he explains, you're not allowed any sexual thoughts because the corporation will be able to read your mind and you will get in trouble for having any kind of sexual thoughts. And it turns out that Abercrombie, though, is part of a rebel movement to eliminate the evil corporation, essentially to have natural procreation take place instead of test tubes, hence test tube teens. And during the scene, as he reveals this to a couple of the students, the corporation, quote unquote, police have come and take him away. And he kind of opens up his shirt, kind of like he's Superman to reveal his true colors. And he's taken away. And after a couple really cheesy sex scenes, not one, well, there was one where there's, we know that they're of age, but one of the students, let's just say shows her assets. So you you have those like uh, the smoke machines going and the the Vaseline on the lens. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like a white snake video. You know, that's basically what you're getting. The video for Van Halen's hot for teacher. You know, it's in that. Yeah. My, my memory and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, that on the, it definitely it's in the, it's in the milder somewhat range. It's, it's definitely kind of that like low, the, 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 the uh, low rent soft core style. Yeah. Yeah. It's a step above like the red shoe diaries, but uh, not that far. (laughs) Uh, so there's lots of cheesy yet funny nude scenes and fantasy scenes. There's lots of TNA in this film, but there's sometimes you're like, you're not getting turned on by this. No, no, I was going to say, my my memory of it was I, again, at an impressionable age, I was watching it. There was a lot of fast forwarding going on (laughs) through some of the scenes, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, it was. And I'll get into that in a minute, but yeah, there's a lot of fantasy scenes yet. The students now are given the, power by Abercrombie to continue their mission, get sex back to natural procreation. How do they do this? They run through the school and they find a time machine. So instead of jumping ahead, they go back 25 years. And Morgan Fairchild is the headmistress of this boarding school. But back then it was an all girls boarding school. 
And Ian Abercrombie was a teacher in the school. It takes now you're getting into Back to the Future territory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it turns out it's almost got that Back to the Future vibe because two of them show up in a woman's dorm in her room. So it's kind of like that scene where Marty McFly talks about his, you know, she asks about his underwear. He's yes. Calvin Klein. It's it, it kind of gets into that territory. Like it's, it's not cheap. remotely on the same level, but it, no, it, and it gets into a little bit of it gets into a little bit of bosom buddies. Where the two boys decide to dress up as girls within the boarding school as Swedish exchange students. Oh, it's all to coming to, back. To try to get down to what is the main crux of the school and why Morgan Fairchild has gone from this headmistress to the head of the corporation. By the way, she's the head of this corporation that's banning sexual activity. And so, so you get it down to the basic plot line, which is how do we get Morgan Fairchild laid to yeah. save the future? <laughs> or as I like to say in the PG, how do we release relief, release her stress yes. to get her amiable to change her mind? You know, there you go. You know, I, I, here I have written down. <sighs> I'm yawning just listening to this. <laughs> there's a much too long female shower scene with bad music. When Bill uses the terms much too long in front of our scene. <laughs> because it's there the the sex slash nudity scenes honestly go on too long to pad the time. Because it's only eighty-two minutes or something. Yeah. An hour fourteen. It's only a seventy-four minute film. So and and with, with even a, a regular sex scene, it's down to about an hour. Between three sex scenes and a bad dance scene at a club. That goes on way too long. Oh, yeah. And, and and let me be clear that the way these scenes are filmed, they could have filmed the dance scene and the sex scene at the same time and just had someone take the shirt off in one scene and just film from the waist up and then put your shirt back on. We'll finish the dance scene. I mean, these are not these are not extremely graphic scenes. We're talking about. They go on for a long time. Let me no, just cut, it, cut to the I chase really, here. Did you like this movie, Bill? Well, well I want to make there's a couple references I want to make, then I'll get to it. There's a future Roddy. Piper from They Live Clone comes from the future. But not Roddy Piper, may but I But it's add. not Roddy Piper. But it's very yeah. obvious that's what they it's are talking shoddy about. shoddy Piper is what shoddy, it is. Shoddy Piper. <laughs> and I also say, at a certain point, he looks like Jim McMahon from the Chicago Bears back yes, in the day. Yeah. It's very much of that ilk. He comes from this futuristic, robotic and robot. He's the Terminator stand-in, but he's awful. Yeah. And he comes from this corporation to find what's going on, but it turns out he can be reprogrammed. It's an awful dance club scene. Fairchild, I'm going to give it away. I don't care. Fairchild becomes a sex kitten, rides off on a motorcycle. Could be David Coverdale on the motorcycle, and she goes off to get laid, and everybody's happy and lovers. You know, like it's. I want to see her hook up with Crombie, Abercrombie, but Abercrombie. You know. <laughs> that would have been that would have been your movie if if Abercrombie has to be the one to. That, that, you know. that would have reminded me of that sex scene with Burt Reynolds where he keeps his boots on. It would have been something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but now you're getting into something that's clever. You know, you you know. <laughs> now the last thing I put on this is. The film takes place in 2019, yet the title says Test Tube Teens from the Year 2000. <laughs> I don't know what Somewhere that in there, I don't. It's yeah. uh, You know what? I it's Charles Band, man. He named the movie long before he had a plot. I, I actually gave this a six. Because, really? Because despite how cheesy it was, I laughed through most of it. So I'll give it a six if you are in the right frame of mind 
and you really have no expectations and you want some bad softcore pornography and some awful time travel, yet you can still link it to science fiction. Give it a watch, and and I and, and really calling it even like sophomore softcore. It's a little that's a little excessive because it's honestly yeah. it's an R rated. It's like a more on the like it's the scenes go a little bit longer, but it's about on like the Porky's level. You know what I mean? Yeah, Would you agree? It's, like it's yo, know, it's it's not exactly a Brian De Palma sex scene. Like these are just this is just a dopey movie. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. yeah. I mean, six is being generous. Like, you know, it, honestly, it's as far as a movie goes, it's about a four. But I, <laughs> yeah. I just gave it for the laughs and just the absurdity of it all. And I do like Abercrombie. It, it, it's, truthfully, here's my memory of it. The movie actually would have been more successful had they chopped it down to like a PG-13 or even not a PG-13. Just take because the new things are the least interesting thing about it. They don't really, even, yeah. Band is just putting it in there to put it in there. Like he's not... He's he's not that interested in it, and neither are the actors involved in it. This no, is, and, they I, add I'm, nothing to the film whatsoever. I'm trying to, I'm trying to go through the IMDb notes because apparently Fairchild was just uh, at, at, at her wit's end with this. Oh, here's funny. Yeah, she Donald, she doesn't really have much in the realm of duty no, in the film. No, she filmed her scenes for five days at ten thousand dollars per day, all in one. She day. looks great. She looks better, you know, than most of the other actors in the film. But she she didn't and know kind of what was in the film. She shot her scenes, but there's no nudity in any. Yes, her scenes. no, no. Now here's the other one. Donald Sutherland was originally set to play Doctor Dorn, which is the Abercrombie character, but backed out at the last minute. <laughs> now, yeah, probably to go make um. Uh, to go make Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is still truthfully a better a better uh, deal. I like this. See, but see, now you're on the right vibe there. The Donald Sutherland, and then again, this is a deal where Ban gets a hold of something and he 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 full moons it. You know, <laughs> instead of half moons it, he full moons it. And that's part of the problem here is that he's he makes these movies that aren't made for him. When we talk about the Luigi's, where this movie is much better as a somewhat naughty like are like low. R-rated comedy that it's not excessively R that it the, the teen might try to watch instead of this late night like trying to make it for you know the 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 Skinamax audience because they don't care about the sci-fi stuff and they'll care even less about the, the, the uh, scenes when they show up. Now here's a couple things it said Morgan um, reportedly after production wrapped up Morgan Fairchild sent producer Charles Band an angrily obscene letter. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I mean, and I, I, I think that's legit. I mean, again, it's not because I have any problems with, with with the elements of this movie, but it's just like there's two. It's like you said, Band always makes these movies where they feel like in the editing room it could have gone anyway. Like yeah. you could have gotten a, you you could get three different movies out of what's happening here, and the one that they chose to make, as is sadly the case with a lot of what Band does, is kind of the least interesting one. Now, here's one last thing I'll say, and I didn't know this. Maybe you knew. It was the first film to be made by Torchlight Entertainment, Full Moon Entertainment, then new softcore erotica division. However, it was, <laughs> it was not the first to be released. <laughs> wow. No, I wasn't aware of Torchlight. Uh, Full Moon had also, I remember they had Moonbeam, which was their kids' like wing. I remember that one. But I don't remember Torchlight. I think I this is kind of where I was dropping off. Why again? I may have seen some of these movies on the late night Cinemax, but this one is not. 
this is not notable really in any way. You're not going to anyone, any kid who, or not kid, anyone who picked this up solely to like see the new year, it's going to be vastly disappointed oh, in it. Yeah, and anyone who's wanting watching it to get a sort of like weird science, you know, because really that would be the kind of comedy this would have been made if it was made on a bigger budget in the 80s with some of these actors. It would be going for a Porky's, a weird science kind of vibe to it. Um, you know, or, or something weird like a boy and his dog. It's nothing like those movies. It's not very good. No, it's 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 not a great film. But as I said, if you're in the right frame of mind and you really don't mind that, and it's mindless. It is a mindless film. Hey, I got to say, it was quite a kind of trip down memory lane, just you even mentioning these. Half the time you mention these movies, and it's just like my, uh, my, my uh, adolescence just opens back up and I'm like looking in at everything, but, um, well, get, get this. The director, David de Cotu, uh, was the same director of sorority babes and the slime bowl bowlerama. I like that one better than this one. I think that one works a little bit better. It, he it, also it, did for. for people here listening, obviously sci-fi fans. He directed creepazoids. Yep. I like that and one he also too. did uh, puppet master three, but his IMDb, he has 172 credits. And a lot of them are... Um, like Hallmark? Uh, are, no, a lot of them are gay sci-fi movies involving Bigfoot. I'm not even Oh, kidding. are they? Look, <laughs> look, there's lots of movies that just have like young, bare-chested men you know, standing in a row. And then behind them will be a, a UFO or Bigfoot. Uh, I'm not even making this up. Look, you go through Cocteau's list of films and you will get a quite it's a kind of an eye-opening experience um uh all the films he's made but yeah i think i think that the that the um gay genre thriller uh seems to be his thing now i was gonna say very profitable for him (laughs) it seems to be but they all have about the same cover it's all a bunch of young uh young teen guys standing i don't know teen younger 20 something men uh, bare-chested, standing in front of some kind of, you know, a dinosaur or something like that. But you know what? Band did that in the uh, 90s with women all the time. So, you know, the Cocteau's... I literally will just watch whatever, and it will be... But it's funny, because I'll say, Nathan, have you seen this? He'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, 2011, I remember I was a critic and I watched this, or 2014, I watched this. So Nathan may come off as bashful, but he's seen as much crap as I have. Oh, yeah, I don't deny it. I try. Well, the only difference is now I try to limit it <laughs> a little bit to put a back in. The thing is, between the video store and the critic gig, it, it's true that I've probably seen most of the things you've seen. Not some of the super extreme stuff, but no. um, definitely mo- I've probably seen, I've probably seen I've, more just random crap. <laughs> I have discovered, boys and girls, that Nathan has seen a lot more Full Moon than I would have really. Realized. Oh, I've seen most of their catalog. I think, but there's that there's a point in time you got to remember that that Cinemax and Showtime played almost a, a predominantly Full Moon in those in my uh, you know teen years there, <laughs> my adolescence. So yeah. should be surprised that I saw and, a lot. Of and, and Mr. Charles Band was never one to hold back on anything that would grab your eyes. It, it's that's very true. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we do. We actually have some. We've got, uh, yeah, we, we we're doing pretty good, I think, on the on the brand new movie front, mixed with some some of the random weird old stuff. Which is funny because nine times out of ten, when someone comes back to me and says, "Oh, we just listened to this episode and love that you covered this," it's always the random weird thing that. Yeah, it's <laughs> that not the current stuff because the current stuff you can hear on two thousand podcasts. Right? How many people will talk about some 
odd slasher from 1987 or some weird sci-fi movie from 1958. That'll be us. So talking about brand new movies that are already overexposed, let's <laughs> let's jump right into it. How about it with um, Army of the Dead? I was going to which... say, so why don't why don't you introduce what the movie is about in case anybody has any idea? Sure, sure. It's a 2021 movie. It is directed by Zack Snyder, and it's the IMDb synopsis says, following a zombie outbreak in Las Vegas, a group of mercenaries take the ultimate gamble, venturing into the quarantine zone to pull off the greatest heist ever attempted. Uh, yeah, more or less, I guess it is. Uh, Army of the Dead is an two hours and 28 minutes of a zombie heist movie that that is, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, it's action-packed. But it's still a bit overlong, and it assembles the groups of characters you think you would see. But it does happen to do a few newish things with the zombies. Maybe not new in the realms of of science fiction and fantasy to people who read, you know, uh, people who are familiar with Richard Matheson and things like that. But I think that possibly it does a few new things that we haven't seen in recent zombie films. Uh, and this movie stars Dave Bautista. He's probably the primary star, but it's really more of a ensemble cast here. Uh, he plays Scott Ward. He's he's part of a mercenary team or a crack team that were when everything went down in Vegas. And you kind of see that in the opening scenes of this film that start with a situation where a government asset escapes. And there's also references made to Roswell. So when this uh, creature breaks free and starts attacking, we aren't really sure what it is. Seems seems on the face of it like a zombie, but there is talk about aliens at the very start of the film. That doesn't really get carried over, but you're not sure what's going on. We see this creature sort of run roughshod over a group of military personnel, and then it runs into Vegas. And then we get one of those Zack Snyder openings that sort of show us all of the carnage going down. And this is when we're introduced to Bautista and his team. They were there to get a political official out. And we see all of the carnage happening. Uh, it's pretty humorous. Again, it has that montage feel that we've seen in a lot of Snyder's other films. If you were impressed with how he wrecked the suburbs at the beginning of Dawn of the Dead, this opening, it's got nothing on this opening because you just see Vegas go into full out... Uh, turmoil and yet there's a story there showing what happens to this team and we see why bautista is sort of a broken down guy working at a burger at a at a basically at a diner flipping burgers at the start of the film and there he is met by hiroko sonata who's playing uh bly tanaka a wealthy japanese businessman who owns some of the casinos Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, they couldn't they couldn't get any more subtle there. So he had these two casinos and he's saying that basically down below the in an underground vault, we've got millions of dollars, 200 million dollars that's there for the taking. If we could just get in and get it out, I'll give this much to your team. You can split it up amongst whoever you get to do it. So then he's got to pull together safe crackers and uh Cracker Jack people that can do this and someone who can fly the helicopter and weapons experts. And you get all of this happening as you normally would expect it in an action film. Honestly, the the early going about the first 40 minutes or so plays about like a understated Michael Bay movie in a lot of ways. And uh, which to me is a positive. It's not it's not as quite as high tense uh, 
and it's not quite as silly. The dialogue is not great, but it's not as silly. Eventually, you get everybody back in Vegas. We also realize that Dave Bautista's character, Scott Ward, has a daughter, Kate Ward. She is working as a volunteer at one of these. uh, uh, So Vegas is essentially the only place that's been infected. And around the Vegas area, there, there are various sort of quarantine zones where people have been kept since the uh, infection occurred. Now, the government's made the decision to use a low-level nuke to basically wipe out Vegas and take care of all the zombie activity. That's why there's now a sort of cl- a clicking, uh, excuse me, there's a ticking clock for the team to get in, Scott's people to get the uh, safe open and get the money out, and then get out of there a de- about a day before the nukes go off. Now, if you think it's all going to go smoothly, you've never seen a movie. And if you think it's all going to happen in an hour and a half, you've never seen a Zack Snyder movie. So <laughs> they get in there and, you know, everything starts to go wrong. You have everybody interacting together. You start to see the zombies. This is where the movie does get a little interesting. I'm not going to spoil too much because I think that it is a ride that's worth taking. I enjoyed it. I think it's a fun action movie. It's pretty snappy in its individual sequences, but I do think it just draws on a little too long. It it starts all of this into motion but it takes its time just a little bit too much. We have so many different characters. We have so many different aspects that when we get to the interesting stuff, I don't feel the movie lingers enough on that. Speaking of interesting stuff, when we get inside, we realize that there are varying levels of zombie autonomy. There are the shamblers, which have actually been out in the sun so long that they're basically stuck together in a big pile. And you only have to worry about those guys in case it rains, because if it rains, then they kind of gain some mobility again. But otherwise, there's just hunks of shambling zombies just kind of baked into the into the surroundings. And there are tigers. There's at least one tiger. There's maybe two tigers. Zombie tigers roaming around that used to be part of Siegfried and Roy's uh, uh, you know, show. And then we also have, to me, the most interesting aspect, the alphas, which are the zombies that were bitten by this initial zombie that got loose out of containment and initially moved into into Vegas. And he is still there. He set up as sort of the leader, almost in like a Conan the Barbarian-like warlord sort of scenario, where these zombies are, are, are almost like a medieval group of orcs or something. They have their own culture. They have their own sort of... Uh, hierarchy, they wear all kinds of battle armor, and you almost have the feel of a fantasy film in a lot of ways, you know, when you get into Bautista's team facing up against these creatures, because they're not your normal zombies at that point. I think the movie, like I said, is fun. Bautista's having a, a, a good time. He's halfway between Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, while also trying to inject some actual sort of pathos and some some human elements. I think that he has a lot of charm. And I do think he can, he's not quite there yet, but I can see, I think he's on the road to being a, a little bit of a more nuanced actor than maybe some of the other wrestlers turned, you know, movie stars. Uh, some of the standouts for me was uh, Matthias Schwig, uh, excuse me, Matthias Schwigoffer as Dieter, who is the safe cracker. He has some, he's given some of the best lines. He gets to uh, uh, throw out some of the most interesting things. And he's just sort of, his whole jittery attitude is a lot of fun. And Omari Hardwick, uh, who's Vanderho, he's really good in the movie. I think Ellie Purnell playing Bautista's daughter is fun. Hiroko Sonata's in it for a little bit. Garrett Dillahunt, I always like Garrett Dillahunt. I don't know that they give him as much to do here as I would have liked. 
But um, it's a fun movie. It's overly long. I was a little disappointed with where it ended up. But you do have some pretty cool action set pieces. You have some very um, interesting ideas. My biggest complaint is it felt like Snyder is almost positioning this for a series for a franchise. So he throws out some very weird ideas and some tantalizing concepts like the alpha zombies. And he doesn't really do a lot with them. And so this movie is a complete story doesn't feel very complete from my point of view an interesting film i'm not going to say it was an awful film or anything because it did have a lot of good action scenes it was two and a half hours there were times where i felt it dragged i think they could have cut half an hour out of this there were some points where it was just kind of plodding along it did keep you entertained and Batista's always pretty fun. He's pretty good in his role. He he kind of has a limited skill set as an actor, but what he does, he does really, really to the character's attributes, the way you want him to be. He's he's very strong in what he is. Kind of like Charles Bronson was never the leading man or the lover, but he always had his role. Kind of like Batista. He has his role. You can he's see him tough. growing a little bit, I think. You can see him trying to he's he plays more the silent type, but you can see him, I think growing with each role you know he, he he is trying to push himself i feel like. yeah i mean this might be one where being a dad with a daughter he might leap into but you know i can't see him doing you know highway to heaven or something that's just not a dave batista role i would watch highway to heaven with dave batista i, think, <laughs> I think that would be really cool actually now that you say it. in fact there would be no reason to remake that show until you just said that <laughs> <laughs> okay people think i'm drunk no i haven't had a drink at all day you imagine highway to heaven with uh, but he's in the in the Landon role, and we'll put John Goodman in the. Uh, <laughs> it was the other guy, his buddy from. Uh, oh Land- yeah, the, yeah a little the, Michael crew. Landon, and yeah, the guy with the mustache. Exactly, the, the beardy guy. <laughs> that could be John Goodman. Anyway, now I'll, I'll start off with what I really did like. I loved the soundtrack. The soundtrack to this was great. Being a classic rock lover and being an older music lover opening up with suspicious minds with Elvis. And what the other thing I like they did is they do, they did is they did a lot of older songs, but they kind of reworked them. So you've got a, a new version of bad moon on the rise. You hear a couple of times, the old CCR song. Yeah. You hear the doors. This is the end yet. It's kind of done more loungy. It's an interesting take. I love those parts of it. Now there's a slow buildup to this because there are, it is literally a cast of thousands. And it literally takes half an hour for you to get to know all the characters. It can be a bit annoying annoying at times because you get to know this person, then it cuts to this part, and then it cuts to this part. You'd need a really good genealogical chart at putting all these things together to try to figure it all out. I really like the role of Tignataro, who played Marianne Peters, a chopper pilot. Though the interesting story to that is she was superimposed and did the part and was later put into the film. I don't think Batista actually ever met the lady. So, yes. Although it, you know, I don't think it, re- I don't think it's really um, that noticeable, honestly. No, like, they, they do a pretty good job with it. I did not know until I read it afterwards. And I'm not one of these people that dig real, real deep right. into it. It just came up in an article. And yeah, I really thought she did an excellent job. And I agree with you, Nathan. I think uh, Matthias Schwaf- Schweigoffer, he did a really good job as the safecracker. Kind of like a, a bit paranoid, a bit jittery, a bit 
I'm a little out of my element, yet they need to protect me because I'm the brain behind the operation kind of deal. So I, I really liked him. Yeah, it comes off like like Elon Musk on like uppers or something. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of a weird. You know, he's kind of that guy that you know that's really, really strong in math, doesn't know a lot about the real world experience, but he's really, really good at what he does. That's the kind of character that he is. And so it's it's an interesting dynamic within a group of uber males, uber females, and then there's this guy. There are some really fun fight sequences. I can't deny that the fight sequences were really well done. They were really well done. They're, they're, yeah, they're on the scale of like, this is a fun, this would be a summer blockbuster movie. It's that yeah. level. These are, the, the, the whole production is a cut above what often ends up on Netflix. Yes. On the downside to that is after a while, onslaught of zombie after onslaught, of, you almost get zombied out within the movie. Yeah. Because, you, you know, you'll get this. Now, it's got a little bit of that. It reminded me a little bit of the of the second movie, Train to Busan Peninsula. Yeah. It's yeah. Got a, mm-hmm. a similar kind of concept. Yeah. Concept to it. And. We didn't really get into that. You didn't get into it. There's elements of time loops. Well, yeah, this. and it, it, when you say there's elements of time loops, it's like there's weird conversations that literally pick at that idea and then just leave it alone. And it's yeah. and and that's where you're uncertain. That's what's so strange about them because of the way they're handled. And it's not unlike Snyder. No, you might not know this, Bill, if you haven't seen the movie, but it's it's not unlike Snyder having that scene in the middle of the Batman versus Superman movie where suddenly the Flash jumps out of a portal and warns Batman about something horrible is coming. And you're like, why would I even know what just happened? And he's, I think he's playing in a similar game here where we're to, if we're to believe or to take it face value, some of these interesting scenes, just watch the movie closely is kind of what he's telling you. Like, watch this closely, tuck it in the back. But what that does is two things, is it makes us not feel like this movie's complete. No. Now, the other part of this that, you know, like this is one of those movies, if you can stomach watching a two and a half hour movie again, you watch it two to three times, you get more out of every time. It's like every time I watch Naked Gun, I mean, it's a completely <laughs> yeah. different movie, yeah. but you, but you, you see, you pick up on little subtleties every time you watch it. This is one of those, except it's got Easter egg after cryptic uh, clue after character quirkiness. There's a ton of it. There's a certain point where yeah. uh, zombies and animated tigers get shot at and there appears to be shiny faces as if they're robots. Yeah, that's that's all very strange. And it's it's almost leaving open this idea that, well, we're not even remotely done with this. But what it does is make you question, well, then what did I just watch? Because I thought I was in it. After two and a half hours, did I just see a teaser for something else? You know, yeah. Am, or where are we? What is this? You know, and I did read an article where I don't know if it's concept or it's gone to print or what have you. They're going to be making an animated accompanying show that delves into backstory and kind of fills in the gap. I don't know if that's a Netflix show or it's something that's still being talked about, but I did read that 
Schneider has said that if this show comes to fruition, it will kind of fill in some of the gaps. Well, and you know, you go back to Train to Busan. Train to Busan at Seoul Station, which came out afterwards, which was exactly what you just said. It was the animated bridge, you know, kind of, it was, it, it also connected Train to Busan, and then later you had Peninsula. And I think this is Netflix trying to get a legitimate franchise out of this. I'm okay with that. What it just means, though, is lots of times when you do this, when you aren't organically letting a thing stand on its own, uh, and this is a weird middle ground because it's not like it quite, it does that all the way. It just has these weird elements that are like, wait, what? You just hinted at time travel. You hinted at, at robots. You hinted, I mean, is this whole thing an amusement park? What's happening Well, opening here? up the beginning, I, I know this is a PG show. And so I, I got to be careful, but there's, let's just say an extremely interesting reason a car crash occurs at the beginning. Yeah, that was that was extreme negligence, road negligence there, and they uh, yeah. they definitely somebody's, paid the price. Somebody's head got in the way. Let's just say, but it, yeah, I was like, I, that's the that's when you when I was saying it felt like a restrained Michael Bay movie. That's where I felt like the opening was like this is the way Michael Bay would open open this movie. And if anybody knows my sensibilities, I was smiling ear to ear. I bet. Well, yeah, it was only a few minutes before you got zombie <laughs> showgirls, so I bet you were happy. Well, um, the other part of the, I mean, talk about plot holes. I don't know about you. Maybe you got married of it that I did, but we never got an explanation as to why the zombies were there. Why they were where in, in well, the, Vegas. when they're well, why in there in the Vegas and how were they created? Why were they being transported on this in this box? So, well, yeah, we don't know where it was being taken to, and I get, and that's another thing. So, minor, I guess, minor. I could put some minor spoiler. Minor spoilers. It happened here. so early in. We the have film time travel, and I mentioned this part already, but not time travel. We have the potential time loops. We have the potential robots. We also have the potential aliens because they have a whole conversation where they talk about they're coming from Roswell. And they think that what they might have is an alien. And the thing in the box, it has markings. It behaves a certain way. What it does is zombie-esque. But it's a single entity. And when it does get in to Vegas, it doesn't just... And that's what I want to ask you about, Bill. It doesn't just sort of run amok. It starts building an army. It starts building a, a civilization. What did you think about the way those zombies, the alphas, were portrayed in this movie? You know what? It the whole concept of different layers of zombies perplexed me a little. Like, it's almost like there's a social cast. Yeah, I kind of like that, though. It's at least a little zombies. different. It, it is different. I will give him that. It is different. But I never knew who was allegiant to who. Uh, is well, this no, person... and I think that's my issue. I If you're going to give me a two and a half hour movie and you're going to present an idea like that, let's do let's let's get into that cast system let's build out that let that movie be about the zombie hierarchy why it's like this what is it building towards uh where are they going with this it, are they are they recolonizing earth to be like wherever they're from what is happening you know almost as a ghost of mars i know that's not a very good movie but oh, did please you... don't, don't bring that up if you don't have to <laughs> no 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 but did you well no one yeah. of my frustrations with the movie ghost of mars is that there was a somewhat interesting idea there where you have these forces that take over and create you know they start uh they're not terraforming the planet they're terraforming the people you know they start outfitting them in different ways and this is alien culture is is sort of uh building itself up out of these humans I think it was handled very poorly in Ghosts of Mars. 
but it seemed like there's a potential similar concept here. But again, they didn't want to quite commit to anything. It's almost like they just wanted to throw out some tantalizing ideas and then give you the very basic zombie heist movie that you were there to see. That being said, it's relatively well done. I give it about a seven, I think. Yeah. One of the things I I think about this, I've mentioned before, you could watch it again. You could legitimately watch this movie three times, take all the notes you want, and still be left scratching your head. Now, I'm not one of those film watchers that has to have everything spelt out for me. It can, you know, a little bit of you have to make inferences, you make a connection, some mystery is good. But there are lots that's left hanging in this. It's a movie made for the internet. That it's why we've talked about it for as many minutes as we have. Yeah, it's exactly. made for discussion. It's made to get people talking about it. It's made to the go. And it's made for them to go back and watch it. If you notice this, a lot of Snyder's stylistic devices that he used on his last five or six movies, that they're there sort of, but they're not there to the degree that they usually are. This is a movie that's made to be easily rewatched. The the rep, the the repartee between the characters is very easygoing. The characters themselves are are dialed down just enough so they feel sort of plausible. It's a real easy movie, despite the length, I think, to, to sit down and rewatch. You know, it's been almost engineered this way that, you know, this can be a fun action movie you can go back to, and then you're going to pay attention to some of these more details. I mean, it's a pretty clever, I think, um, device here on the on the part of Netflix. You know, this is a movie that's going to invite you to want to come back to it and, and spend some more time with it. Yeah. There's two aspects of it that I haven't been mentioned that I really liked. I absolutely love a movie where they break into a bank or a, um, a bank robber or a house robber and have a giant prize. And how do they get the caper done? How do they break in? You know, you've got your Italian job. You've got your Ocean's Eleven. I love those kind of films. Absolutely love them. And that aspect really drew me into this. I didn't know that it was played up enough. Although, I mean, there's only so much you could do. And I like the character, the German character. I was slightly let down by, let's just say, how it played out. I agree. That's kind of where I felt. Is I, I felt like in favor of not being able to wrap this up as a story, I think if they committed to that story and we saw an ending that was satisfying to this story, I'd be a lot higher on this. I'd be probably pretty high on this actually. Yeah. But as is, I think it's a it's a really fun summer action movie. And if they throw a few extra things in there that ensure that it won't be quite your average day at the zombie park. Yeah. And the other one thing, last thing I'll say that hasn't been mentioned is I really liked the paranoia that was built up within the community of the crew coming in. Of there is one character that we're not sure of his intentions, and it added a layer of paranoia. I really liked that part of it. I, I thought that was really good. And it's, everybody, you know, you've got, if you are familiar Survivor, he's kind of your Richard Hatch type character. I, I really liked him. But there is, let's just say, a comeuppance that happens later. So I won't get too much into that. I'll give that a seven out of 10. Yeah, uh, okay, we're about si- on the same page. Yeah. A six and a half to a seven. Is it is it mind blowing? No. Is it as worth the hype as I've seen some people say? I don't think so. But is it better than you know your trauma film? Obviously, is it better? <laughs> is it better than your middle of the road? It's it's better than that. I think it's it's one nice, of Netflix's better. I think yeah. action thrillers that they've put out. In a if, little bit. if you like caper films, if you like zombie films, if you like 
uh, guys and girls working together to achieve a goal. If you like quirky characters, there's something in there for all of you to watch. Uh, if you like a predator kind of film or like a Terminator where the robots get involved, you'll like this kind of film. But at the end of the day, you know, if you take it at surface level as an action film, you'll get what you want. But I just felt there were too many holes and things were left lacking for me to go over the top that as many other people are. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. I think if they tightened some stuff up and they had, had really cut the movie down and kept it um, sort of more sleek and a little bit more vicious than it is. I think that it really could have been, could have been much higher for me, you know, more like an 8.5 or something. It's just, there's a lot of good in there. I just, and then I feel this a lot about a lot of Zack Snyder films is there's always a lot of good in there, but there's always just a lot, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think and, that's and- the thing. There's just a lot that comes along with it. Not all of that is, beneficial to the film and i think that uh, Zack snyder has a little bit of gene simmons in him in that there's going to be a whole whack load of uh paraphernalia toys t-shirts lunch boxes video games all that kind of stuff there's going to be a lot of money to be made from endorsement type products as a result of this movie yeah yeah definitely they know they're building a franchise again i think that it it didn't sort of exhaust me in the way you might have like with the, with the Michael Bay movie. They kept that humming along. I think Bautista, he he's. I think we're going to see him keep getting cast in movies like this because not unlike The Rock, he can sort of carry them when and and make it almost look easy. And you don't have and it doesn't have to be a super well written role because he will fill in that role with his personality. And I think he he does a pretty decent job of that here, and the rest of the cast does too. Yeah. I can recommend this, yes, but I think go in with it with tempered expectations. Yes, and keep an eye out on all those little bits and pieces. I think science fiction and fantasy fans might even enjoy that more because you're not getting run-of-the-mill zombies. And if Snyder finds a way to really like cash in on these little pieces he's put in there, if they aren't just there as decoration, if they really amount to something later, I'm all in on this franchise. I would happily watch another one of these. Just yes. give them something to do and give them an ending next time. <laughs> I, I, I want to see what Snyder could do in 90 minutes. Well, we I, we have, right? Didn't they call that Dawn of the Dead? Dawn of the Dead, yeah. That was when he was just happy to have a job. And he, he did a bang-up job on that film. Well, then, I think the- Dawn of the Dead, the difference in those two films is that one, it feels very tight and it feels very, it is kind of lean and mean. And uh, you look at the way it's structured and the things it does, um, I think that's kind of the issue is like this one's fun and it's big, but it isn't quite as effective as that other movie. But Absolutely. still, that's me, you know, talking about negatives when you just say, hey, there's a really fun zombie movie on Netflix. And if you have a subscription, you don't even have to pay and go to the theater to see it. Anyone who's listening to this uh, and if if you've listened to uh, one of the recent episodes, it's the podcast that Bill is also on, the Land of the Creeps podcast with Greg Morgan and... Uh, Dave Becker over there uh, they recently did an episode on cult films and everybody kind of picked a cult movie and talked not not movies about cults but cult films you know those movies that have a kind of small but very passionate uh following and it, it, it wasn't a whole bunch of wicker man movies no 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 was it was it wasn't the wicker man or 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 you know uh kill list it right, wasn't all right, kill list. all that kind of stuff uh, all those good movies and certainly an episode about cults would be interesting too but 
one of the movies that was brought up on that show was a movie from the 70s based off of an H.G. Wells story called The Food of the Gods. And you really need to go over there and listen to that episode and listen to that review uh, because it's it's hilarious. <laughs> and and uh, all the points it makes about this movie are true. The Food of the Gods, uh, in, in very basic, uh, super basic plot, is that there is this substance that sort of, uh, we're not entirely certain where it comes from, right, Bill? I don't remember. No, it's, it's it, one of those, yeah. it's a plot hole similar to Army of the Dead, but it's not nearly as head-scratching. Right, or, right. or maybe it is. Maybe it is. <laughs> the The implication in the in the Wells uh, story, if I remember, is that it came from space. But whatever it was, it had the ability to cause things to grow to sort of enormous proportions. And so in Food of the Gods, uh, in the H.G. Wells novel, you had a baby of giant size. You had rats of giant size or rodents of unusual size. And they were sort of running amok everywhere. You had giant wasps as well. The... 70s version has the giant wasps, the giant rats, a giant cock at one point, uh, a giant rooster sort of running rampant. Uh, I think my favorite part of the podcast is Bill was when you said, I want to wear, I want to be that giant rooster next year at Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, the, it's a silly, silly movie. The rats are just rats running around and you, you're very worried for them because it looks like they're being harmed and, and drowned and everything else. Uh, uh, I believe IMDb or Wikipedia ensures us that none of the rats were harmed. So, whew. but and, and that, that radically altered some people's. That's true. Yeah. When I would understand that. So the, uh, it's a very silly movie. The thing is I watched this movie tons of times as a kid. I saw it on TV quite a bit and it was silly but i still enjoyed watching it because it was fun to watch these rodents these rats um and they're like they're like white rats and brown rats and they're just kind of crawling up over these buildings and like the mini farmhouses and and over little dams and stuff and it's it's really ridiculous it's very similar to to almost like a godzilla film or like a night of the lepus or something where they have rabbits running around or those old very, very much of the, in the vein of squirm yeah yeah exactly it, it just pretty pretty silly the funny thing is you know everyone's talking about this movie and as i'm listening i remember in my mind wait a minute they made a sequel (laughs) and they made a sequel and guess what we're doing next ladies yes next we are we are talking about food of the gods part two when it was released it was released as gnaw g-n-a-w i didn't even realize that yeah no it was it was released as gnaw and I remember, and I was probably the only person excited for it because I, as a kid, I remembered seeing the previous film. This was not a movie with a giant budget at all. And did, did, did this get a theatrical release? I think it may have gotten a theatrical release. It came out in 1989. And it was, you know, it's got Damien Lee's credit here as a director. And there's, it was released i want to say it was released by give me one second here again something i'll probably cut out but the reason i want to look at this is i want to see who released it because um yeah canadian entertainment investors number one (laughs) new line released it but they released it around the same time they also released watchers and they released fright night part two so they had a whole bunch of these movies that were sort of in the bag and they were releasing them. And some of them had very limited theatrical runs. This does, I think, this uh, 
did get a theatrical release, but I think it was very short-lived. And it was filmed in several places in Canada, including Ontario. And yeah, I, I, I was going to say it's, it was uh, shot in Mississauga, which is just west of Toronto. I'm like, I think that's right near where I used to work. Nice. You might be able to go out and be like, hey, I saw a giant rat there. It was right there. So uh, here's the – so Food of the Gods 2 comes out in 1989. So it's over a decade after the 70s version and not necessarily has a lot improved. Here's the synopsis. A growth hormone experiment gets out of hand when the resulting giant man-eating rats escape, wreaking havoc on the unsuspecting ca- campus. Much bloodletting follows. Well – some bloodletting follows. Uh, this cast, I'm curious about this, Bill, because you recognize people from all all walks. I recognize nobody in this cast. Well, it's funny. When I looked it up, I always like to deep dive into it. Now, Damien Lee, you're like, Damien Lee. He watched a movie. Or he watched a movie. He <laughs> directed a movie that I've seen multiple times when I was between the ages of 12 and 14. And that's Ski School. Ski school, I bet. <laughs> he directed ski school. Not on the bottom, not on the top, just on the, you know. Well, yeah, Damien uh, Lee's got quite a bit. Well, it's interesting because he's got a movie that is in, in, in not yet released called Super Dicks. It's in post-production. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> so, so Damien Lee. Now, Paul Kufus was in 976 Evil 2. Who knew that had a remake? Or a, I was going to say, oh, now you're reaching. He, I'm sure these people have been in other movies. And, <laughs> I, I, and that movie hadn't been made yet. But uh, no. the other one I, I know um, Damien Lee from is he also, uh, he did also, he did um, the producer. I don't know if he was the director on, but he produced Watchers, which was based off of the. Um, oh, the book. Yes, the, the the Dean Koontz book, which was Dean in and of book, itself yeah. not a uh, not a bad movie, but he's the director here. He also directed uh, a movie that I remember from the nineties called Abraxas, Guardian of the Universe, starring none other than Jesse Jesse Ventura. Oh boy, was this post Predator? It was post Predator, and it shows it was not a not a good movie, but. Definitely a good. They would be a good one for VOD roulette one day. I was gonna say he he didn't use this when he was trying to be governor, right? As one of his. I I very much doubt it. Did you recognize anybody else in this cast? Uh, well, Paul Kufus was also in Chopping Mall. Well, fun movie, but I don't know. I could pick him out. <laughs> and and maybe some of our audience would know. Apparently, he was in Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. Okay, now the one female lead, Lisa Schrage. I knew right away from Hello Mary Lou Prom Night Two. Okay, yep. All right, you're right. Yes, that's and I and, didn't I didn't pick up on that as I was watching. And, but you're absolutely and right. I didn't realize till I because I went into all of them. The character Real Andrews, the uh, leader of the resistance, shall we say? Yes. He was he was in a lot of soap operas, but Stuart Hughes was in 2017's It, and was in Orphan Black. Oh, really? Yeah. So he's got a little bit. And Frank Pellegrino was in one of my favorite movies in a dark sense. He was in the Uruguayan rugby movie Alive. Oh, was he? And that's a good movie. That's a good movie. So you've got a little bit of stuff sprinkled of stuff they've been in, but collectively at this point... Not uh, a lot. You didn't know anybody. No, and nobody's quite burning it up. It's not like when you see George Clooney and Charlie Sheen and Laura Dern <laughs> and Grizzly Two, which yeah, it's, was never it's actually like, released. It's it's not like when you see uh, Jason Alexander and Jacob's Ladder or something. Oh. Like it's not that. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly right. There's not a lot place to go. And you get the feeling that this movie did not catapult them there. So the one interesting thing about the movie is that at least here, there is a sort of scientific reason to the extent that there's given a for why the rats and the and the animals in general are mutating. You know, you have this kind of biological experiment. Early on, we are introduced to, as you point out, this kind of this resistance, the people who are sort of the protesters or the group against these animal experiments. And you get a couple of rat attacks, uh, people being attacked after hours it's near some of these facilities. Uh, this is when you realize that the rat attacks are just about as shabby as they were, maybe even a little shabbier, actually, than they were in the 70s film. Early on, you have what looks like a big stuffed rat just sort of being thrown at people, you know, or a guy wearing a, like a furry, furry like jacket. Uh, it's not it's not exactly uh, top notch special effects work. I think you'll agree. And oh, then yeah. later on, you do get a major rat attack where it is very similar to the old movie where they are just showing us normal size rats in a certain perspective. So they look giant, but in this one, they're just even more chill. They're just like really just half asleep. <laughs> they're just sort of chilling, walking along. I mean, they, they're not, they're not in a hurry. They're taking their time. So, now, did you, did you want to let people know why are these rats out attacking people? There, well, this is because of the, the, the experiment, right? Like the, yeah. the growth experiment, uh, their yeah. hormones and, because of this, so again, here you have science actually sort of being involved, creating the monster, if you will, and you have some pretty arrogant scientists as well. So we see a couple different ways that this hormone serum goes awry. Uh, the, the rats, of course, are there primarily because the rats are in the old story, and the rats are a good source of horror, right? You can have them jump out at people and attack people. But we have other components of the story that are kind of just really absurd. They probably could have been interesting in a movie that we really wanted to tackle this, but this movie, again, doesn't have the budget or the like intelligence, I'll just say it outright, to handle it well. So we have this other storyline that involves a child that has been exposed to this hormone uh, serum and is giant. So you have a scene that, and, and not just giant, but also aggressive aggressiveness seems to come along with the hormones and, and what, and what a potty mouth. Yeah. So you have this kid who's just cursing up a storm. I think this is actually a internet meme. The scenes from this movie of this kid who's, who who talks like Betty White from Lake Placid, but he's like what, like it, it, six or seven it, years old? It's very much like that scene in Beyond the Door. Yes, those kids yeah. in the back of the car just swearing like a sailor, and you're like, what? But he's a little kid, but he's also a giant little kid. So he's like, his voice <laughs> is got, booming. So he's like, don't you tell me what to bleep and bleep, bleep, bleep. And you're like, what? It's like that scene in Seinfeld with the man hands. Yes, it's, it's very much like it's that. It's like that. The, and I would say the dramatic effect is about the same. So you see this yeah. kid who's supposed to be, he's really just superimposed there. He's supposed to be giant. And he's freaking out and he's cursing and he's screaming. And, and you're like, why is this scene, this interlude even in here? It does come back around and they sort of bring it back in. Once you once they're certain you've fully forgotten about the giant child, they sort yeah. of bring it back I, in. For I, I, had, I had completely forgotten about that component of the story till the last five minutes. And they want to bring it in in a sort of horror concept and it doesn't really work. It's just still stupid. 
Uh, and, 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 and stupid's a good way to describe a lot of what happens in this movie. None of the characters are very interesting. Uh, you have scientists. You've got the good scientist who wants to kind of figure this out, wants to do the right thing by humanity. You've got the arrogant guy who thinks he can control it. And then uh, and he gets his comeuppance in a very interesting way. And then we have giant cancer. Is that the best way to describe what happens at a point here? Uh, sort I, of a, I, At a certain point... I stopped trying to figure it out. It was cool looking, but it was like, what just happened? It was pretty, that was the one goopy part of the movie that I thought, oh, the special effects here aren't awful. You know, they're, they're okay. No, it was, it was pretty cool. That one scene at the last 15 minutes, that was the best part of the movie to me. Then you eventually have to get back to where we now have to stop the rats because there's lots of them. They're running amok and they do attack a swimming pool, which gives you cool scenes where these women are in the water and they're screaming and these big slimy looking pool noodles that are supposed to be the rat tails are sort of flopping about. <laughs> Not them. only were they swimming, it was a synchronized swimming competition. So the rats are <laughs> popping in and the rats are supposed to be mauling them. But again, the rats could give a crap. <laughs> the rats are just like sunning themselves, you know, but in every scene we're seeing people run from them. And the rats are just like looking for food, taking naps, you know, they're chilling. They seem pretty, pretty content. At least in the original Food of the Gods, the rats look somewhat menacing. These ones literally look like they were just superimposed while they were walking around. Well, like, apparently in the original Food of the Gods, they were firing like, you know, uh, Air, air pellets at them with blood, so they were on edge. These rats have yeah. been seem to be well taken care of because they do not care. <laughs> the SPCA probably heard about <laughs> the first one, and they were right there. But it's astonishing that 1989, that you know, this whole decade later, when you you're, I mean, this is at the time for context. Not that they had this kind of budget, but you know, you've got Batman coming out, you've got Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade coming out, even lower budget horror films, movies like Leviathan and Deep Star Six, they've got better looking monsters than what shows up in this movie. This is all pretty poor. It looks bad. I couldn't remember my I remember I'd seen the movie and I was curious to see if it held up because my main memory of it was that he did try to make it more of a horror film than the original but it doesn't have the charm of the original it's really kind of boring uh it does go a step further in the original there is a point i think that you pointed out or somebody pointed out that one of the characters comes up as they're being attacked by rats and approaches one of the other characters says won't you make love to me and so but in this film they just go ahead and do it you know <laughs> the yeah, doctor's this, up this all guy... night trying to figure out the how to solve the problem and then suddenly in the middle of the lab he's like <laughs> time for a break yeah, let, let's go. Let's go porking, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, like the first scene, it's amazing that all this crap is going on. Where I, I don't want to give away main plot points, but really, do you I don't think it matters. No, the uh, resistance, those protesters, are in the lab. You know, breaking things and knocking things over, and they get attacked. At the exact same time, he's having sex with a lab assistant. So the the typical trope is those who have sex, sex causes evil and people die. That's exactly what happens here. There's a very funny scene, and I did start laughing. About three-fourths through the film, the rats are out in town. A guy is kind of making out with his girlfriend. He goes out to take a leak. <laughs> this is a funny scene. And a rat comes out of nowhere to attack him. He's got his pants around his ankles because he's got his 
Wang in his hand and he's running down the street, butt forward. And these cars are coming on him in the street. And I was rolling. Like it is just ridiculous. Like it's, it's hilariously bad now. And the fact that the rats attack during a synchronized swimming meet, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> You wish they had just really recognized the because both of these films, the best parts of them, and that's best is in quotation marks, uh, are are scenes where you're just laughing at the absurdity of this. Like uh, the story was absurd when when Wells wrote it, and if you want to go back and look, some of the illustrations that accompanied his books when they were originally published are pretty funny there's one with these people pulling this baby in a giant baby carriage it looks like it's a tank you know so i think he had a sense of humor when he wrote the story there's no sense of humor to be found here in the films but except in in a few moments here or there but it's all the humor of the absurdity i almost wish that someone had purposely gone at this from a comedy perspective and just given us the, you know, I would have liked to have seen the uh, Second City movie version of this, I think, Bill. I'd like to see the <laughs> Eugene could... Levy, John Candy versus the Giant Rats movie and the Giant yeah. Cock, of course. Well, I, yeah, I could see Eugene Levy trying to go down on Catherine O'Hara while all the crap is going on in the in the, in the lab <laughs> right exactly he pushes <laughs> but, but it's, pushes glasses up on his nose to say it's time for some science <laughs> <laughs> but there's two elements of music that made me laugh now towards the end of the film after the rats have gotten loose in the community pool where they're doing this ridiculous competition all of a sudden the music for three blind mice start coming on yeah that was absurd like why would that ever happen <laughs> and the main scientist uh Paul Kufus at the beginning of the film pulls out a fl- um uh, he's a flautist he has a flute or i i guess it's rather a recorder yeah it is. <laughs> this is more like a recorder <laughs> yeah so he's like the pied piper and these mice are f- going around him and you're like what is this guy like a seventh grade music that was teacher? absurd like and but those are the scenes when i sat and i saw those sequences of this movie and think but they're not done for humor. Like they're done in this almost sense of like, just, just accept it, just take it. And I, but it, 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 it's why I don't know if there's an ineptitude there, be like the giant cursing child. Like, is that supposed to be funny, right? We're supposed to laugh at this giant obscene toddler, not a toddler, this obscene, like, what is he like a, a kindergartner or something? He's not very old. I, well, they try to explain it at the beginning where he has his parents, realized that he was growing large at an early age and they brought him to this clinic to get help, but it cannot be exposed because they're, they contribute a lot of money towards this organization. So, so they keep him hidden by and, but I don't know how you hide a giant cursing child who's just bellowing like <laughs> profanity and seems to and, be. And, and, and as this film plods along, all of a sudden out of nowhere, then there's a set of boobs. And, yeah. and you're like, and there was no lead up to it. And just boom, a set of fake boobs. And then on with the rats. And you're like, they were the doing science and then they were doing <laughs> something else. And that's basically like how that scene progresses. And it's the middle of the lab. Like, I think he knocks beakers over getting her up on the table. But that's not the only time. There was at least two or three other times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's a sloppy mess. I mean, I, I like boobs as much as the next, next guy, but out of nowhere for no reason. Like, it's, it's not like it's showgirls, you know? Like, ugh. It's under, bottom line is, I gave this a three and a half out of 10. And, and that's lucky. with the boobs. That's with the boobs. 
<laughs> Three and a half out of 10. And they're lucky. I can easily see some guy saying, or some woman saying, God, this is awful. This is a one. And, and I can't argue. I, I can't argue. Yeah. I only, well, the only part of it is, is it was shot in Toronto. So I'll, I'll give them that. You're right. This is about a three. It's a pretty poor. I was, I, my memory of it was, well, I think it might be a little bit higher and go back and watch it, but you're, you're absolutely right. It's really silly, but it's not even like, it's not entirely fun, silly. It is very plotting. The plot doesn't really go anywhere. There's the rat attacks aren't interesting. There's no, there's no suspenseful buildup to them. And there isn't even this sort of gee whiz, like, goofiness almost like the first movie had almost a like a doctor who even though it was you know it was very canadian but almost had a british sort of twee sense of 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 uh like eccentricity to it you know what i mean there was a certain eccentric feel to you know these people just keep going around these giant things and they know they're going to get harmed and they just keep putting themselves in harm's way there's nothing like that here it seems like a very serious trying to be a sort of somber story about man's meddling with nature and genetic tampering and all this, but it has no idea what actual science looks like. And it has no idea how to craft a suspenseful scene. I don't think there's any scene in here that can sustain more than a second of actual suspense. No, now there is an inordinate amount of time spent in a lab. And, or there's a few lab scenes. There's a lot of so, lab scenes. Some of the lab scenes and the love scenes are the same thing. <laughs> and, and you know what? There's about as much time spent in a lab with this as there would have been for, say, Shakma. Very different movies. Yes. I much prefer Shakma to this. So, so <laughs> all of that to say this movie's about a three. We kind of reviewed it just because, you know, we, we found it is on YouTube. I'll put the link in the show notes to it. If you if you were game to watch Food of the Gods, the original, you'd probably be game to watch this one. Again, it, when it was released, it was Gnaw, Food of the Gods 2. And again, that title, if you're going to call your movie Gnaw and it's about giant rats, this should be a horror comedy. There's no reason. They missed the boat big time on not making this a Now, if there's anybody comedy. listening anybody listening in Canada, it was actually blocked for me. Um, Studio Canal, I believe it was, had the international rights and wouldn't let it be shown in Canada. But I found it on Daily Motion. Oh, okay. So, so there was a copy out there. I'll find out to put that out there as well. Yeah, yeah. If you're in Europe, uh, if we actually have any European listeners, they may be more familiar with Daily Motion. It's found there, but it's one of it's one of those where they show the first 59 minutes and there's a part two. So you have to search in the thing, Food of the Gods 2, part two. <laughs> two, two. You will find two it. Dot two. Uh, yes, two, two. Uh, the, so, the, yeah. That's about all that could be said. The only question I have is, would you watch a remake of this if they made it, Bill? Oh, if Charles Band was connected to it, maybe. See, I don't. I want him. I would want him to go full comedy. Yeah, I want to see Christopher Guest's. If they could make it, if they could make it fun like a Ouija's, then I would watch it. Yeah, something like that. It was. And I'm going to go to one now that I found and I wanted to get a hold of and review for you guys and girls. It's 2021's The Retreat, and it came out on the 21st of May in the United States, so it is still current, and while I don't know that it got a theatrical release, it is available on streaming. This is also a Canadian film. It was shot in Toronto. It was funded by Telefilm Canada, so it's got a little bit of a spot in my heart for it, but that has no bearing on what I, whether I like it or dislike it. The synopsis is this on IMDb. 
A lesbian couple with a rocky relationship go to a pre-wedding retreat and ends up fighting for their lives when a group of militant serial killer try to murder them. Wow, that's a lot to jumble in uh, one sentence. Here's what basically happens. It's directed by Pat Mills. It has Sarah Allen, who was in uh, yeah. The Secret Window, that some of you might know, and On the Road. The main star in it that you would know a name of, he doesn't have as big a role, is Aaron Ashmore. Uh, Aaron Ashmore was in Veronica Mars, the TV show, uh, the TV show Designated Survivor. He has a quite a bit that he's been in. He's one of those faces you see and you go, ah. Yeah, you know, it's either him or his brother, Sean. Football guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah, one of the Ashmores. They're always kicking around. And it has an actor called Monroe Chambers, who is in Turbo Kid, who people who like the sci-fi fantasy genre, well, everybody will know Turbo Kid. And he was in a show called Degrassi High, The Next Generation. Anyone Canadian remembers the original Degrassi High? I'm not Canadian. I remember the original Degrassi High. Well, there you go. Degrassi High, there you go. It starts with a gay male couple driving to the cabin in the woods. And they're going to be, I think, celebrating getting ready to get married. And this is kind of like their last chance to let their hair down before, you know, real life kicks in. And let's just say things get a little bit bloody. There is the credits, and then a lesbian couple is driving up. They're kind of moaning back and forth with each other in the car, chirping each other a little. You can obviously tell it's been a bit of a trip to get there. And they're meeting this the male gay couple who one of them has gone to college with. Uh, she knows very well. They're good friends, almost like lifelong buddies. And they're all kind of celebrating together. Okay, so... You also get the impression that this relationship that they're going up with hasn't isn't quite as strong as the, the male relationship. It's a newer relationship. So they get up there, they go into the cabin, they look for their friends, they're trying to choose a bedroom and take their clothes into the spots where it needs to go, and they can't find them. And along the way to the cabin, the girls had run into... Sean Ashmore or Aaron Ashmore, sorry, <laughs> slip of the tongue. Aaron Ashmore, they had they had gone in for gasoline. She was buying chips and sundry items. He hit on her without realizing that she was a lesbian, and she rebuffs him right away. He gets ticked off, and they go back up, and then they can't find their friends. And at a certain point, crap hits the fan. And we realize that these girls are being stalked and watched because of their lifestyle. And they are not the only ones that have been stalked and watched. And it has a bit of a political message, but it's a really decent horror film. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's nothing earth shattering. It's a survival film. And uh, what was that film, Nathan, that you reminded me of that is very much So I haven't seen this vein? one, but when you were describing it and when I read the synopsis, I thought of, uh, so the movie that it, in, it initially reminded me of just as you set it up and not just because it involved a lesbian couple going into the into the woods uh, to kind of work on their relationship, and uh, that one they were already married, but this one was called What Keeps You Alive. And it sound it also kind of played in the vein of survival thriller. It worked in a different way, where it was coming from sort of uh, the the kind of danger within. I think 
you know, it sounds like this is a more a danger without more of a survival horror thriller, you know, um, not quite straw dogs or something like that, but where they're fighting for their lives against external forces and their relationship is on exactly it, like, and the relationship and the cracks in it may also be a problematic, but it's not necessarily the primary gist of what's happening. That's exactly it. Because in the film, while the girls are trying to figure out what's going on, it falls into a little bit of the horror trope of girl goes out alone in the forest, gets her foot caught in a bear trap. And that leads to us figuring out what the external pressures are. And that leads us to figuring out because of their lifestyle, people are being targeted. And again, nothing earth shattering or world breaking in this, but having said that it is much better than the 4.4 given to it on IMDb. I enjoyed it. I gave this a 6.5, which could creep towards a seven. Again, I could probably rewatch this and enjoy it. And it's not an overly long film, uh, an hour 22. And when you take away credits, it might be an hour. 15. Well, so and it's as we well talked about the IMDb watching. scores, the, what keeps you alive? 5.7. Did you see what keeps you alive? I have seen that and I really did like it. I thought that was a stronger film, but it is in that vein. This one is a little bit more uh slasher. Yeah, that was a little more suspense thriller-ish. But it's, it's but I also thought uh this one is a little grittier in its mean-spiritedness. And what keeps you alive, they were a lesbian couple, but that didn't play into the storyline. As much as yeah, it, it, it certainly here. seems like that and so element almost... is more of a plot point, and I'm I'm interested in seeing it. I like yes. what keeps you alive. I will point out that it has a 79 percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. However, the retreat does, so it's a it's a little bit more favored okay. over there. Because I I know listener of this podcast Edward Delgado, friend of the show, he put on one of the uh, Land of the Creeps posts that I had on this. And he said he enjoyed this film as well. Again, not earth shattering, but worth a watch. And it's a little bit, I wouldn't say allegorical, but something obviously represents something. You can look into that what you will. But I think it's a really strong role for females. I think it's a strong role for the lesbian gay community. And I think it as a horror film, it works. And that's the bottom line. I don't care what anything else goes. If the film works, the well, film works. And I appreciate that. Yes, it's I, got I actually uh, enjoy that we're getting these films where we are, we're, we're getting the films where the, the, the gender and sexuality, the characters just, it, not that this is necessarily doesn't matter and that we, we, they're just completely interchangeable, but that the, the genre has always been big enough for this. Uh, it's just that, Previously, people just didn't do it. You know, it was just that you're always going to get the guy and the girl go out into the woods and that's it. And uh, what keeps you alive uh, was playing with it even in a different way. You know, that when you get to the point about representation, it's when anybody can kind of be cast into any role and that we're ready to have that role, whether they be the survivor or they be the killer. And as long as it feels organic and it doesn't seem like the film is taking some sort of negative agenda against that. Now, it sounds like this movie is actually trying to kind of put its finger on a pulse. I think that the movie could sounds like it could be a good horror thriller. I definitely want to check it out. You kind of get that sick pit in your stomach sometimes thinking, 
people still think that way. Like yes, I, and that, I, that in fact, I've spent a lot of the last few years sort of that sick pit in my stomach just getting deeper and deeper and and realizing that uh, we that in some cases we've not moved that far away and it's uh I think that sometimes that anger and that frustration when you can channel it into a horror movie it's a sometimes it's a good place to go I really enjoy we talked about spiral book of Saul this time but I did enjoy the spiral from last year did you see that I haven't gotten also around to put, it uh, I was trying to cram as many 2020 films in at once and that one just I think also it was a shutter original or it was primarily on shutter and I know you don't have access to shutter no, uh, it, but uh yeah this you know it's one of those ones where you're like as a human being I abhor that type of thinking and ugh, give it a six and a half, watch it, go in with an open mind. And as a Canadian, watch this, watch Aqua Slash. And between the two of them, it's only two and a half hours. You're going to have a blast. <laughs> what a weird pairing. I, I am, this is high <laughs> on my list though to see. I do want to see it. Uh, I like the, the, this cast and, I um, I'm intrigued. I'm interested. So that's uh, that'll be our uh, our our show for to for uh, tonight, and we'll be back soon with uh, with an, with more weekly reviews, and we have a lot of uh, other episodes coming up soon. A lot of content will be going out. So until next time, uh, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Take care. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.